Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This is a conversation with Kathy Merritt. Now, Kathy is one of the lifers of Roadrunner Records. She was there from 1988 until 1990, and then swung back around in 1993 up until uh, the end of days in 2011-2012. Um, Kathy's one of these individuals that bleeds Roadrunner Red, and that's a term and a phrase that you're going to hear left, right, and center on this entire project. And you can tell what I mean by the way Kathy speaks with reverence for her time at the label and what the label did. Currently, she's head of sales at Epitaph Records, and we go on about that a little bit at the beginning as part of some initial housekeeping and industry talk. Let's jump into it. One, two, fuck shit up. Typo negative and fear factory trained me everything I need to know about being a parent of a boy. I learned from those two bands <laughs> from putting them in the van, getting them there, driving through McDonald's, everything in the world that you have to do with, uh, with man children. By the time I had a kid, I was so ready. I'm like, ah, I got this. <laughs> yeah. That's, and we'll jump into all that stuff. <laughs> 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 it's crazy. You're one of the ones which has like the honor of being there the longest. Yeah, I was there, you're, I was you're there, up 20, there 20 years. And I was just fascinated by the list of co-workers and old bands that you've already talked to. It's just amazing. So hearing different people's stories, it's been pretty cool. But I spoke last week to Ro, Ro Coley. I have to see he is like the the linchpin for the West Coast because he is the one person who keeps in touch with everyone and always checks in and always makes sure you're okay. And mm -hmm. my son and he, their birthdays are a day apart. And so I always check okay. in with him on his birthday and, and see things. But he was just like, he is constantly reminding me how I am so much cooler than I let myself believe I am. So <laughs> <laughs> purely because of the tours of the bands and stuff that I've- And he's a, he's a Star Wars guy. So we connected oh on gosh. that. Oh, he is. He is. And he he rubbed that off on my kid for sure, because my kid's a Star Wars guy too. So yeah, it's fascinating. Let's jump jump into it then. So um, why do I usually start with these things? I've been completely run ragged today, to be honest, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have your little notes. I have your little housekeeping notes and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so the, the questions themselves are kind of headspacey because yeah. um but I, I like because the, the the core of the project at the minute is I'm trying to break it away from the case of Monty story because obviously like when you the yeah, how am I going to put this into into words which won't get me a cease and desist letter um, on because obviously cases the he's, he's the head honcho but Monty was very much the face of the operation but there's my belief is and my what I'm, I'm trying to unravel is. The Roadrunner as a vehicle for a disruption in the industry was more than just two people. Identifying bands is one incredibly important part of that. But for me, there's a lot of back office functionality, which also um, helped all move along. Um, and I'm trying to just sort of bring it all together and help people understand that because everyone knows that Roadrunner is an incredibly special place and it's an incredibly special, a poignant vehicle for these things to happen. It's how a lot of people got into metal. But it kind of ends at Monty, and people go, "Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all it's all that." But no, there's a shit ton of stuff going on. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to unpick a load of stuff, and and try and bring it to light. You'll know this because you've heard the podcast. <laughs> I have. What fascinates me is because I work um, much more now in the international space than I did at Roadrunner. Because Roadrunner, you know, we did the U.S. operation, and I, you know, my final job there, I was the operations director for the West Coast office, so I made sure everybody 
got paid and, you know, the copy paper and all that kind of businessy stuff. But mm. then I, I still did the, the physical and digital sales on the West Coast. And so now at Epitaph, I do streaming and sales, but streaming is a global entity. So Alon had run our international office and obviously the, which is the start of case in Amsterdam. And there was a period of time when he ran that office before he went over to Epitaph. And so he and I have known each other for years and I've had a lot of people that I've incurred that I've kind of uh, came back in touch with at Epitaph that had Roadrunner history. So Roadrunner to me, it's like, you know, some people talk about combat <laughs> where it's like every, you know, this is bond that you had. There was some amazing, amazing people. And it's so great getting a chance to go back and listen because some of these people I haven't talked to in years. It's like, like I said, Roe is this linchpin who kind of keeps everybody together. And, you know, we used to kind of have reunions every once in a while, but then no, you get kids and everything else that falls apart. But I was fascinated with how well-known Monty was in Europe and, and around the world, because he, he and Case never really liked to do interviews. So he always had Monty be the face. And so he's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And Monty's, Monty's, yeah, and this Monty's really good about keeping in touch too. He's, he's super cool about that. I was speaking to Marcus Turner as well. Oh, and he, the, the, <laughs> the perspective is interesting because I know what I think of and feel when I see the little red candy bar logo. Mm -hmm. Right. I know why as a fan, I get like my own little nostalgic beats of boom, trivium, boom, kill switch, engage, boom, tap on it. But from your guys' perspective, and this is how Marcus put it, it was just behind this, this side of the desk, it was just 150 people. Yeah. It was 150 people working around the clock to do things. Um, and that's poignant because for a number of reasons, one, there's no perspective from the maggots perspective mm -hmm. the maggots are that, there's, <laughs> there's an entire army of people who have a different relationship with this thing that you conjured up yeah. and secondly people i think these days when we have conversations about work career what people do for a living it's sometimes not so well accessed the end-to-end -end product life cycle right this is what this I'm honing in now. Yeah. It, <laughs> I do ramble a lot. It, people, because people usually work in giant organizations or they work in, in, a, in a workflow which is so sprawling, especially in like the UK where a lot of our, lot of our workers are public sector and, 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 and health workers. There's an entire like body of things that's, that needs to, needs to be alive to work. And with Roadrunner, it's 150 people, which is remarkably small. So the site of the end-to-end -end product lifecycle is, is interesting. And I think that workflow and how people formed a relationship with that product lifecycle is a big part of how it was so effective at bringing bands to the forefront, getting it into the right places, spotting the right talent and pushing it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to kind of unravel because my generation of metalheads might not get that. We might think, oh shit, you just start a label. Oh shit, you just signed a band and then you just post enough things on Facebook mm -hmm. and that's it. It's like, no, there's got to be, there's a bit more engineering to that. Yeah, you know I, mean, I mean, now, now it's, it has like, with me at Epitaph, it's volume. So mm. the amount of time that I spent with a band at Roadrunner, you know, I probably went to a hundred either radio interviews or in stores or tour dates per band per per album cycle. And we'd work them two or three years. You know, so I knew I knew these people's parents and I knew their girlfriends and I knew and it was like a really like you were so ingrained in it. And now it's like Epitaph put out 400 products last year. And so you basically don't like between radio singles, EP singles, like anything that kind of rolls in and out of, you know, digital and physical, I'm touching 
between anti epitaph and Hellcat, there's just so much volume that you don't get the kind mm-hmm. of quality time. Like I have bands that I work with. You were asking about one of the questions you asked was, you know, architects, obviously architects is a huge, huge, you know, amazing breakthrough for me coming from Roadrunner to work with bands like architects and Parkway Drive. And every time I die, and falling in reverse and touche more it's like i got my first gold record that since i've worked there they're sort of the policy of like whatever you have to start a project to get a gold record so falling in yes. reverse popular monsters like the first gold record it showed up yesterday i was like yeah. oh. <laughs> it's like it's like that, that concept of of in this day and age it's like i've never worked so hard to sell so few records because it's so much yeah. volume and so much quantity where roadrunner i mean we would start we would make a one sheet and you sold a hundred thousand records as soon as that one sheet went out because there was we were so targeted at taking care of those, if it was 15 or 20 bands or whatever it was, there was so much targeted marketing and you spent so much, you know, flesh and blood and time with that, that everybody that you dealt with, whether it's sales or radio or whoever, like really felt the urgency to be part of it. It was like, I was shocked when I started seeing kids with Roadrunner logos tattooed on their bodies. I'm like, you don't see that with Microsoft and Google and Apple, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a very, you know, it's... I think everybody wants to feel like they're part of something. And this was where every misfit in the world felt at home. And I think the maggots were probably a good example of that. But that concept of just like, yeah, we're just as fucked up as you are. <laughs> and we're good with it. That's a great soundbite for the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've touched on a couple of things there, which I'm, I want to expand on as we, as we move through. Just the difference between... and it, to. Comparing it to today is a really good way of, of quantifying the value of the Roadrunner had because, again, it's, it's, there's volume and there's also saturation, which is what presumably the volume is trying to combat, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just let's just do the, the housekeeping and pluggable. So I want I, okay. I, I want to start by basically giving you the floor to tell to tell the world or my 89 subscribers on YouTube, whatever that number is now, um, what Epitaph's been up to and what projects you've been working on and, and things that... Uh, they should be directing their attention towards it's super exciting time obviously like you said architects coming from a metal background bands like architects parkway drive every time i die falling in reverse fantastic touche amori probably doing the best work of their lives they're going to go out um touring god if you see them definitely such a great live band um thrice another fantastic band that you know they've only had one record on Road, on uh, Epitaph so far, fantastic band. Um, but one really exciting thing that we've been working on is we're moving from this emo rap into this pop punk scene. And so we just <laughs> we just dropped a fantastic single yesterday from Little Lotus mm-hmm. uh, called Romantic Disaster. He's going to have a record coming out this summer. Um, Gucci Highwaters is another one. It's like all these kind of lo-fi bedroom emo rappers that were so influenced by things that epitaph did 20 years ago mm-hmm. it's really fantastic to start to hear this kind of 808s adding guitars adding drums getting live scenes smart debt's another one just totally fun project um and then I've, I've got anti which like curtis harding just dropped a new single and curtis harding is if there is ever if you could find the coolest person you have ever seen in your life, like you just look at this guy and he just, everything about him drips cool and effortless cool from fashion to music to stage presence. He's amazing. Definitely check out Curtis Harding. And then Hellcat, the interrupters. I can't even tell you how watching the interrupters explode over the past uh, 
seven years has been just fantastic. And we just dropped a new record from the Mighty Mighty Boston. So I've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> Interrupters, I'm going to hopefully see next June. I think they're supporting Weezer. Yeah, Green Day. It's it's green out here. It's Green Day, Fallout Boy, and Weezer. Same here. I really like so, yeah. how Weezer um, decided to hold back their. There's no reason to hold back their album, uh, Van Van Weezer, other than Rivers <laughs> saying, "Oh no, this was an arena rock album because we've got an arena rock tour coming." Well, up, right. So. I mean, all the dates are just duplicates from a year ago that got canceled. Exactly. And moved, so yeah. yeah, like here they're playing the like Dodger Stadium. It's like the biggest venue you could play. So. Yeah, it's gonna be cool. no, it should be it should be insane. But yeah. no, I, the interrupters have been on my list for a long time, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so good. It's interesting you talk about like the the moving from like the emo rap to the, the the pop punky stuff. Like as a strategy, it must be interesting because you've got living memory of all this stuff that happened on Epitaph, which is being influenced in the new age. But at the same time, you've got to also have a cyclical strategy in the business to go. Let's make sure our mindset isn't ingrained in what we were doing ten years ago because. I guess like maybe maybe it's a bad comparison, but we had thrash and then there's like a thrash revival of the 2000s, which has been propagated by the same people that propagated thrash in the first place. But mm -hmm. it wasn't quite. I mean, I, I guess you weren't ever going to sell like a black album or an injustice for all, but it speaks to the uh, the saturation of the market, as we were saying earlier, in terms of how what 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 things that, that what kind of genres and what kind of brand that's that. that certain labels are going for so it's quite interesting that epitaph went no we're going to go to this other thing that we're kind of known for but we haven't really dealt with it in the in a told strictly modern terms i'm rambling a bit but i'm well I'm, no I'm, I'm I, getting, I, do you know what i'm it, getting at <laughs> it's, I, yeah and the strangest thing is like the best quote i have heard to kind of encompass this which is my philosophy and it definitely is epitaph's philosophy is the movie incredibles Mm -hmm. And it's the character Edna Mode. She's like, I can't look back, darling. It distracts me from the now. You have to yeah. look forward. That's exactly <laughs> that's where you have to go. And yeah. so Brett Gerwitz and Andy Culkin. Andy is the is the president of Anti. Brett, obviously the the you know founder of the whole Epitaph Empire. Like they look forward all the time. They're always looking for. I mean, they were looking forward when they found Offspring in the eighties. And they were, they're always going to be looking forward. And so they are always at the cutting, which, which fascinating me now is the same people that we worked when we transitioned Roadrunner into Atlantic, which then became Electra, which is now Fueled by Ramen and all that kind of stuff. Those guys are signing the same kind of artists that Brett was signing a year before with Nothing Nowhere mm. and that kind of stuff. So it's like, it's interesting because I always feel like Brett is just at that cusp and then the majors are like, oh, crap, we have to do that because Brett's doing that. So uh, he's definitely a leader in the space, always. Do you feel like album cycles are like a, a massive part of that? Because a year in album cycle terms is half an album cycle, isn't it? It, it really, because most, most bands these days tend to go like a two or three year album cycle. So really, if you want to be innovative, you, um, if it was me and I was running a label, I'd be like, let's go, let's go for the motorhead model of trying to churn out something every year or 18 months to make sure if we're ahead of the game, we're staying ahead and we've got our claws constantly in front. Well, I think, I think streaming makes you have to do that. So, so many of these artists, like this, the cycles aren't even called albums anymore. It's project cycles. So now <laughs> you get something where like Gucci Highwaters, for example, in 2019, we started dropping singles from him. We dropped singles every six to eight weeks all the way through 2020. And then at the top of 2021, he drops an album. 
and it explodes. And it's just because he's been churning those algorithms and he's been churning that fan base and he's been keeping everybody attached. And it's very much the SoundCloud method that did that. It's like you, when you have something, you make it and you put it up right away. And so that's a big part of Epitaph's thing. It's like, it's very artist friendly, artist forward. The artist mm -hmm. is always right. Having worked at Roadrunner with a lot of artists, I'm kind of glad that that was not the case then because those, a lot of those guys were not right. <laughs> but now learning, learning coming because Brett is an artist and because Andy is an artist, those guys come from the thought process of what would the artist want to do? So now that's part of why I think Epitaph gets the opportunities we get with a lot yeah. of these new signings because we can turn on a dime. You can ask Alon. It's yeah. like something will come in the door on Monday. We could have it up by Friday. It could be better two weeks from now. We might have a bigger, you know what I mean? But there's the ability to do that much quicker than there was when during the Roadrunner times. There's two things I want to expand upon there. I did, I, I was hoping we'd get into history stuff, but I find this stuff yeah, so no, no, interesting. No, 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 yeah. So I got no, no, it's a weekend, a holiday weekend for me. I got nothing. You just let me know. So the first thing there is um, being an art historian today uh, label, whereas Roadrunner at least was perceived to not be. I think there's something to be said. This could be a Roadrunner certainly of its time and maybe the, that model isn't quite as accessible these days. And I think it's a lot to do with mobilization and mobilizing a product and a project. The idea is you're a off kill to death metal band, but you've got something that Roadrunner likes. We can, we as Roadrunner can put it to market and put it to the stretches much quicker than you could do it organically. organically. I think that is kind of one of the, the muscle flexes that Roadrunner was, which couldn't happen now because there's so much tooling available to the artist on an individual level. Yeah, and I guess it depends on when the artist started because someone yeah. like, like obviously you look at a YouTube situation or a social situation for Epitaph now, a, a small band that doesn't have any kind of following, it makes sense for them to you know, premiere their video on an Epitaph YouTube because it's got three, four million people that are watching. Mm -hmm. um, someone like Falling in Reverse, those guys have been, YouTube has been the forefront for them from get from day one. And they're such a visual band that they always make sense. It's, for them, it makes more sense to put it on, to drop things on theirs because there's more people there and then later put it onto Epitaph. So with Roadrunner, it was like, we had mailing lists, we had industry contacts, whether it be radio, press, retail, anything that in that way. And a lot of the bands that came in did not have that understanding, but also they did not have a reason to think that what they did should go somewhat mainstream. You know, the first time you see a Sepultura record in Best Buy or, you know, Musicland or any of these like big chains, I think people were kind of stunned. I remember mm -hmm. the first time that typo negative was on the cover of a magazine it was alternative press and you the alternative people wanted to kill us they were like how could you take alternative this is an alternative it's like it's on alternative radio it's on you know what i mean it's like if just because you don't like metal doesn't mean it isn't good <laughs> and that, and that's a real that that's been like probably the biggest fight that all of us at Roadrunner that bonded us because it was like the, you're not supposed to be good. You're not supposed to be popular. You're not supposed to have this happen because you're metal. And the metal people are the most loyal and long-term fans. You know, you see from the festivals over in Europe, you could, somebody could be 18 and they could be 62 and they're still going to those festivals because that means something to them. It's part of, yeah. it's the fabric of what makes them. The dichotomy of one making, trying to make metal 
accessible and objectively um, poignant with a consumer is in kind of conflict with, but we like it to be outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like that. In there lies the value of 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 you know of roadrunner as, as a thing, as a vehicle. Is mm-hmm. try how can you make something filthy and disgusting still like knock? I don't know who he knocked off the charts actually. Uh, did slip <laughs> I don't know who knocked something. Knocked. I know it was something relatively conventional for the time, and it's just not an item I can pull out with a minute. Um, but yeah, it, it's oh, it was it was a really big rap artist on on Atlantic, the one where where Slipknot came in first and yes, oh my goodness, I remember that because it had to do it was it was. I got the biggest bonus ever that year because because it was hot topic. Hot topic reported and and the the people at Nielsen didn't process the hot topic orders correctly and really? the hot topic order was enough to push Slipknot to number 1. And oh, what was so funny was was Mick from Slipknot. They'd had a party out to celebrate out here in LA at the some posh hotel and he's like you know and i know this guy this rapper he was like sitting with his friends and they had this big bar and they were ready to pop the crystal and they were doing all this great stuff he goes i was standing in line at walmart buying toilet paper when i heard that i had the number one record in the country <laughs> in des moines iowa it's just like to me it was just fascinating i could i could i'll tell i could tell you later i could ask austin stevens if you haven't talked to him yet he was um such a go-to great guy still works with Wea and still works with a lot of the roadrunner artists he does mm-hmm. uh he's uh, one of the vps of streaming over there but he um he'll remember who it was yeah i'm just trying to find it now but um I'll, the not the point being is the trajectory that roadrunner were on which is this is the vehicle for disrupting the industry in such a massive way that we've knocked off the, i mean the thing that came up there when i was looking was slip not knocked ed sheeran off the charts which is obviously a more recent example but mm-hmm. the, the the fact that it's a vehicle for that makes it really important and poignant and it's a different beast these days so the second thing i wanted to ask was the emphasis on streaming because I, I keep hearing and i keep propagating the message that there's never been more money in music these days people are buying more music these days in some way or form maybe it's just metal and maybe it's just the vinyl market or maybe it's just the bundle market um how much is for a label's income or for a label's revenue how much is reliant on streaming and how much is reliant on physical in the new age of like physical vinyl bundles oh with us probably 70 percent is streaming wow yeah. Wow. So it's that. I mean, and obviously, if you're like um, like we work with a merch company, Kings Road Merch, that does like Descendants yeah. and stuff. I mean, obviously, they're it's a separate company, so it's not considered, you know, part of of how our numbers go. But we mm-hmm. sell our vinyl to them. Yeah, but I, I'd say probably with at this point, yeah, vinyls twenty five thirty percent. That's crazy. I thought it was a lot more than that. I thought it, I thought like the last few years would have brought it into balance in terms of the actual. Um, the actual numbers, as in money getting passed over the counter, that's crazy. So every time I'm streaming something, well, you know, like two point two. Our, our our fiscal our fiscal ends in June, so I'll let you know <laughs> if, <laughs> if the last year because the last year has been crazy. So now with all these pressing plants having having backlogs and issues and stuff like that because everybody being home. I mean, I probably bought more vinyl this year than I'd ever bought before because what else are you going to do? You know, we have a handful yeah. of record stores that are open. You go buy vinyl and have. You know, the fact that my 20-year-old son buys vinyl every week just fascinates me because, you know. Well, since I last bought vinyl, I've, I've moved into a house and had kids and things like that. So I bought my first vinyl for well, nearly eight years last week. 
Nice. Right. Evil's new album and um, a repressing of Andrew WK's I Get Wet. <laughs> <laughs> WK. I love his new look. It's great. He's yeah, it's. I need to. I need to get on board with the new music because the last album he did was really good. Yeah, it was really um, great. Christ, what yeah, I saw him at, at South by Southwest. I want it was like three years ago. It was wonderful. But I'm so excited to get rid of those white pants. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? The new one. God is partying. Is the new one. Yeah. Straight He's to so, straight on brand. So good. <laughs> so good. All right. Let's let's dig into some history. Okay, um, history. Uh, so. Roadrunner NYC. So this is where you get your start with, with Roadrunner. So how did all of that come about? I worked in college radio. I did a metal show in college radio um, in 19, in the 86 to 88, we're talking years ago. And uh, I worked at the station on Long Island. Long Island's a suburb of New York City, uh, WNYT. Monty Connor worked at a label called Shattered Records with Paul Diano's Battle Zone. And so his job, he was like a plugger you know, you'd say in the UK. So his job was to call up all these college radio stations of people that have metal shows, talk to them about the stuff. And we hit it off from day one. So we always talked about different stuff. And um, I started to intern at WBAB, which is a, a, a commercial station on Long Island. And they had the best metal, like commercial metal show, mm -hmm. Fingers Metal Shop on Sunday nights from like 11 to two. And every band that went through New York or Long Island, because we had a club there called Sundance that was a really big hotspot for metal. So every band would come through, would get interviewed on Fingers. So that gave me an opportunity to kind of see what it was like to do interviews and what it was like to have a metal show. And I really kind of embraced that. But because of working at BAB and because of working at the college radio station, I always kept in touch with Monty. And then when Monty moved over to Roadrunner, he started doing radio there. And then they, Case and Doug Keogh just realized that Monty had something special going on. He is wise beyond his years. Um, and he is... Uh, much larger than his follicles would, would have you know. He had such a big, giant head of hair that, back then. And um, Monty just kind of had this thing. There's, sometimes you meet these very special people in your life and you don't know what it is about them. But Monty was sort of like the, the older brother and the little sister that you never had. He had sides of him that were both, <laughs> you have kids, you understand this. And now Monty has kids and, you know, but it's... Uh, Keeping in touch with Monty was what happened. So then when I went to graduate, I started working full-time at the radio state at WBAB radio station. And Monty reached out to me and he said, do you want to do college radio for Roadrunner? And so it was an opportunity. It was like a dream come true. It was like all I really ever wanted to do was be able to work at a metal label. And he gave me that opportunity. So I started in November of 88. Wow. I wasn't even born then. It's crazy. It's insane. That's okay. No <laughs> oh, by the way, can you hear this fan in the background? Or is it okay? No, I can hear it. It is so fucking warm in this country today, and I, I don't cope. Oh, I've congratulations. Got... <laughs> I'm yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, looking for an excuse to, to sort the garden out and make it safer for the kids, but it's just not been pliable, not been workable for the past few weeks. But now I, I've got that Norse kind of condition where I need to be cold, and it's, I just realized I've got it on full blast, and I was just wondering if it was coming through. Anyway, no, I can't I hear it at all. Excellent. Fantastic. It, one thing, I don't, I don't know if this is something you can comment on, because um, I think it was, it was, strictly speaking, it must have been before your time because it was 
just as Monty was, and maybe not because Monty was graduating into the A&R world or he was making a lateral move. And then you come in to presumably fill his vacancy, which he was leaving behind. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that turned Case and perhaps maybe even Doug on to death metal and thrash? Because at this point, Crimson Glory was the, maybe a little few, a few years early, Crimson Glory was the be all of, of Roadrunner at the time. And I know Sepultura weren't quite signed yet, but there was still, I think this is in that sweet spot where Monty starts bringing in the obituaries and starts bringing in uh, Sadus yeah, and, and, and things and like you that. Know, and you probably know um, Borvoy Kurjan. Like he was, yeah, okay. Borvoy was Monty's best friend. And Borvoy was a writer and Borvoy had all these contacts. He worked at a management company. And that's where Sepultura came in because he was sort of managing them at the time. Mm -hmm. And all these connections all came through Monty. Like that yeah. was basically where it started to happen. Okay. Did, did Case eventually just sort of go, oh, this, this, this noise on the fringe and this, this, this Florida scene and all this stuff, fine, just bring it in and see what sticks. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because obviously King Diamond was the very, was the biggest thing ever. The tippy top, yeah. You know, very, very much so. In 88, that was, that was the shit. It was so yeah. all about some King are, Diamond. Some of you forgot that and mentioned Crimson Glory, which isn't untrue. Oh, no, yes, no, no. King, King Crimson, Crimson Glory was a little bit later for me, but King Diamond, like, it was all about King Diamond. And to this day, I am blown away by the number of people that, I have met purely because they loved King Diamond. People in bands, <laughs> people at labels, people from all walks of life that were, you know, I, guys at Microsoft, like, I'll send you anything. Want an Xbox? I just need tickets to see King Diamond. Like, still, and now that Metal Blade has them, because I have great friends at Metal Blade, it's like, still, I just, everything about King Diamond and Andy LaRock just, it just, it was such a special time. Um, but I think that just leads into, there was so much going on in that scene at the time. And Monty just had his, definitely had his ear to that. Mm -hmm. And I think working uh, the Morris brothers, Tom and Jim Morris at Morris yeah. Sound and Scott Burns, you know, all fantastic people that really, and, and I always joke about Scott Burns and Scott Burns and I were the two people that if we walked into a bar a metal bar, you would be, you'd call the cops like, oh my God, the narcs are here or something. No, it was, I think that was what helped us get as far as we did doing what we did because we didn't look like we belonged in that scene. I always looked like somebody's little sister or then somebody's PTA mom. And I would just walk in and you wouldn't expect me to be representing who I was representing. And I, you know, I don't think Scott had any tattoos. Like he just was not of that scene at all, but it was just great to kind of have that subversive side i think that helped you talk to jim salaby jim salaby had the same way until jim got a got a little older he didn't look he just looked you know we would walk into walmart or best buy or whatever and just we would look like we were just business people we could have been selling toothpaste as well as death metal it's just the looks yeah. that we had so so let's talk about lafayette then because everyone has okay. a, a great affinity for that office and what jim and it's mentioned oddly you mentioned jim salaby who said oh, the desks were in a, like a circle yeah it was like a pit. What's in the middle of the circle? That's what I want to know. So it was so funny because I actually, you asked about the layout. So I actually sketched out the layout. So it, yes! what's funny is the offices, <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. So the offices were, it was like a giant rectangle that was broken up into three rooms that had doors between the three rooms. And so the big main room had um, a salesperson at that. When I started, it was Jonas Naxon, who's the, the president of... Uh, Spine Farm. Of Spine Farm now. And um, 
a woman named uh, Lydia Sherwood, who was the press person. She sat next to me. There was always a retail person. Um, that person, I think Doug Jacobson was one at one point, the, the person there. And then I was in the corner doing radio. So it was like, we could all kind of touch each other from where we sat. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time Jim came along, it was a much bigger, it was a bigger space, but it was always still this kind of like three room thing because it was like the first door you would walk in. Cause with Lafayette, like we at one time, Doug Keogh, like we were in the first room. So we always called us, like we were like, when someone's coming in with a gun, we were going first. Because <laughs> the door, like, there was no way to stop. Like, people, the door just opened. It was either locked or unlocked. And the door just opened into the room. There was no, you know, sort of sitting area that mm. kept you safe at all. And uh, the only person that we ever thought was going to kill us was Peter Steele. But that was before, that was post-carnivore, pre-typo negative, when... Um, relativity you know important relativity distribution had this thing called super savers where they would take two of your records and put them on one cd if you were like a hardcore band or whatever and you had a short record and they would sticker it so you would walk into into music land or whatever and you'd pick it up and it'd say super saver and you were getting two records for the price of one well he had gone into a store and seen two carnivore records on this super saver thing and thought that was way too commercial for his taste and burst in the door on a day when all of our bosses were on vacation and so it was like me and Doug Jacobson and this guy, Larry Getlin, who was the press person at the time. And here's Peter Steele. Neither, none of us had ever worked with Peter. We didn't know him. And he was just like, I'm going to fucking kill somebody. And I'm like, I don't think it's going to be us. I don't think we're who you're mad at. And I'm trying to like talk him off the ledge. <laughs> and years later, he was just like, I remember you trying to reason with me when I was in this rage of not being, you know, and I'm like, oh, well. That's kind of my, that's my thing. <laughs> Shit, talk, you down, talk you down. But, um, but that was scary. That was fun and scary. But it was the like kind of thing. It was like, it was like, you know, the, the cats away. There we were like, okay. Should have locked the door room? maybe. Yeah. Should have locked the door. What's, what's in the far room? The far room was part warehouse, part Monty's office. Monty stayed as far away from people potentially with guns as possible. <laughs> he was always in the back. And Case would be back there too. Like Monty and Case would be together with, with on the time. Like Case would was probably there like every two months or something like that. He'd be there for a week or so. Yeah. And then um, and then Doug Keogh was in the middle room in the back, and he had his little finance people, and uh, that's where the radio people started. But then we got too loud, we had to move to the front room. And then the front was like that. It was like a marketing pit. Epitaph still has a marketing pit. We call it mm. Thunderdome in our office. So it's like <laughs> the press people and the and the digital people are in one space. The marketing people are in another space and then radio and press and epitaph have their own room because they're too loud on the phone and you don't want to hear it so but yeah but it was it, that was that was a super fun office it had been yeah. the original offices for mad magazine and that was doug keogh's calling card ever so that you could find you can go online and see the mad magazine like they talk about like there's movies and stuff about mad magazine you see the original business card and it was 225 lafayette and so that was one of those fun fun tidbits making a note because i haven't seen many i haven't seen any images of the um roadrunner office as the roadrunner office um but you are right mad magazine is quite a well-recorded uh thing so i bet there's some pictures of the lafayette office and i have i have pictures of the lafayette office i could i have like i'm looking right now at this can you see it but this is borovoy and me and 
Jeff from Annihilator <laughs> at, an, at an, an album release party that we had in the office. They used, Roadrunner always had their Christmas parties in the office, right. no matter where their office was. So each year, the as the offices got bigger, the parties got bigger. But it was always this fascinating thing where it was as much booze as you could humanly you know, conjure up um, like four trays of food. So never enough food to go with the amount of booze you were serving. And you were always the next day finding out that someone had sex in the president's office, whoever the president was, it was Case or Derek Shulman or Jonas, whoever. Somebody always brought a friend and they ended up having sex in the president's office. And then somebody's stuff got stolen. It was always like somebody stole a monitor like when monitors were like 400 pound thing, how the hell did somebody walk out of the, like we were just too much drinking. So I think I, I need to, I need to let's dissect some of the Christmas because you've been there for so long. Let's have you got, have you got any favorite Christmas party stories? I've been, I've been, I've been advised to ask about Christmas parties more often. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take the opportunity. Um, we at, When we had Christmas parties outside, there wasn't that many that we had outside of the office, but we did have one when CBGB's re- they were gonna they were gonna go legit and they cleaned up their downstairs and made like a party space that was not the most horrible thing in the world. Like it was nice <laughs> and velvet and it was really red and cute. And uh and the guys from Typo Negative came and it was like if you had a, a artists at a party, that was always a lot, a lot more fun. But I, I joke now with my husband, I'm like, I think because of all the time we spent at CBGB's, that's why none of us here got COVID. Because if you've lived in and out of like the Whiskey A Go Go and CBGB's bathrooms, you probably have caught everything in the world well before yeah. and you're well vaxxed. Um, but the Christmas parties that were at the office, it was funny because once the LA office started, the Christmas parties in New York got bigger. And so then we would just come in for those. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it it was great. It was like you'd interact with artists, you know, to be standing somewhere and have like Alex Newport and Jerry Cantrell and, you know, guys from Typo. It was, just, it was great to have. It's like everybody wanted to get an invite to that party. It, it, yeah. That was like the key thing in New York. And it always rained sideways. Like you'd walk, you'd be... Go get your hair done, get dressed, whatever. The ladies are all looking nice, and then you walk in, and you're like, oh, <laughs> always horrible, but but fun, always fun. So moving into into the the day job then, day job. So as we, so as you're coming in, and as you say, we've got King Diamond tippy top. We've got all this incoming death metal from Florida and from Morris Sound. How's your day job going? Is it an uphill struggle to get these guys the right airplay? Is or are the connections which have been established by the label and to these various press outlets, did this play to your advantage? What was it like? Well, that, back then there was like Rip Magazine and there was Metal Maniacs and there were these places that specialized just in metal. And that was great, you know, because mm -hmm. in LA at that time, it was all about the hair metal bands. You know, everybody was, you know, Trickster and Winger and all that kind of stuff. And so for us, we were an alternative to that. And there was a lot of more underground places that wanted. Well, that was wanted. that by design to go against glam? You couldn't compete with the money. You know what I mean? Major really? labels wanted in so badly that oh. they were throwing bags. Someone like Warrant. I know at one case, Doug Kia was like, yeah, he, I met these guys, the manager, the, the Warrant. Like Warrant wanted millions of dollars to get signed. There was no way that that was going to happen with what Case had then that was really the sort of the the seed of the 360 deal a roadrunner deal 
at that part, for the most part, an artist would come in, a seven-year deal, which is unheard of now, and he would want publishing, he would want merch, and he would want product rights. So you pretty much, you got money and you, and you were able to make somewhat of a living, but that sort of print, that was not something that majors were doing. They were going out and getting separate deals at all these different companies, you know, companies like Bravado and, you know, for merch or Warner Chapel for publishing, like they were all trying to get a piece of this hair metal thing because it was, you know, Headbangers Ball and all that. It had TV and it had radio and it had all this kind of stuff going on. Um, my husband, when I met him, he worked at a place called Pirate Radio. They did nothing but hair metal 24 hours a day, commercial radio station in Los Angeles. There's probably no one that knows hair metal better than my husband at this point. It's just like insane how much I'm like, I had no idea Taikato was it's so important. But <laughs> for us, King Diamond was the calling card for sure. He yeah. sold records. People knew who he was. He was well-established in that scene. Annihilator came in and blew the world away. I mean, Jeff Waters is such an amazing character, but such an amazing guitar player. And I think mm -hmm. people did not expect that to go in. And then when Monty started getting into the Sepultura and obituary type of scene, it was like all we ever wanted to do was grow up to have a band be Slayer. And so yeah. I always, that was always my high point. And it was like, cause Slayer was so beyond just being a band. Slayer is, is a lifestyle. Slayer is an, a, cultural entity so you would go on the subway people would be wearing slayer stuff and you go down the street to the dentist and you see somebody wearing slayer stuff and to me i never felt seriously accomplished until slipknot because slipknot to me replaced that element that slayer had i mean all of a sudden it was like everywhere we went there was slipknot and it was just it blew up and got so huge so to me that was the winning one. But back then, like Sepultura and Obituary, like all they really wanted. And I think Monty and Doug working on getting touring, touring was what really kind of pushed all of these bands over the top. So how would Roder administrate the touring from that? So just expand on what Monty and Doug would do there, because my understanding is it sometimes would be a management thing. I like just leave it to the managers to sort out the touring. Sometimes Roderick would get involved and try and orchestrate a a strategy for the band to be on the road in certain territories? Well, so, yeah. Well, sometimes because we'd have enough bands that were strong enough at the same time, we would do like the road rage, the road rage, the road rage tour where you kind of put bands together to tour, but they were just always talking to managers and talking to lawyers and talking to booking agents about having opportunities. I think the really big, and this is moving forward ahead, you know, forward, but the big break I think was Sepultura opening for Ozzy yeah. and then on the no more tours tour of which there have been 12 others since <laughs> and and then and then for me in that same year and i have my notes of what year that was i want to say it was 92 so it was yeah. like october yeah so october through december of 92 sepultura opened for ozzy and then for the month of december they opened for ministry and helmet wow. and I don't, I don't know if like you've talked to a lot of people but myself jonas naxim Mark Abramson and Jamie Roberts all have this um, sort of unique qualification. And we were boomerang roadrunners. We worked at Roadrunner, we left, and then they brought us back. So I worked at Roadrunner 88 through 90. I moved to LA because Combat Relativity hired me to do radio for their West Coast. So I moved to LA at that point. And then from 90 to like 93, 
I worked at Restless. I worked at Metal Blade. I worked at all these me- labels that you were talking about that were sort of the competition for Roadrunner. Yeah. So I had worked at all those different places for, you know, six months, a year, whatever, until Roadrunner hired me to go on tour because I had known the guys in Sepultura since the day they came to the States. Like when I was in New York, they, they, they act, we actually had them room with my roommates in her old dorm room so that they would have a place to stay at NYU. So I've known them for so long and Gloria who had managed them at that point um, had worked with Atrophy and a couple and Sacred Reich and a couple of the bands that we had worked with. So they were just like, we need somebody that we know that can get them up every morning to go to radio, to do retail events, whatever. And it really needs to be somebody that understands how Roadrunner works and understands the importance, like you said, of radio getting this done and press getting that done or whatever. So everybody would send me, you know, every Sunday, I'd get a list of all the things that had to be done during the week. And then my job was I would follow their bus in a van, in a van drive around with them, pick them and take them to all these different appointments that they had to go to so that the road manager and Gloria could deal with what it was like to be on a big stadium tour. And it was fascinating. I learned, I've been to every state in America and to be in every state in America with a Brazilian death metal band is a whole different, whole different world, (laughs) but fun and, 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 you know, wouldn't trade it for anything, but yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Was it your ambition to move to LA? Um, or was it just a big opportunity you thought we got to jump in both feet? Uh, relativity. It, 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 for me, it was a personal decision. I had, you know, failed marriage, I guess that, uh, crazy ex-husband that you're like, Hmm, where could I go get a job that is as far from here as humanly possible? And that was Los Angeles is 3000 miles away. I can edit that so, out if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Are you sure? it, it, yeah. No, it's the fiber of what built me to be a strong person. Uh, okay. So yeah. So crazy ex-husband, I got this opportunity because I had worked. It's really weird because relativity, because they had their label and they had their distribution and we had red important red distribution. So we knew all those guys, but they had where their offices were in New York and Hollis Queens. They were all like one big pit too. So the the Alan Beckers and the Howie Abrams and all these guys were all in the same space and they all knew each other really well. And we all, our bands toured together and we worked together. My best friend at one point worked at In Effect. And so we would go out and do stuff with Scatterbrain and things like that. Wow. So when I started talking about wanting to live in LA, they were like, hey, we need a person out there. So they hired me. So I just, that was just a natural fit for me. And the best thing I ever did, honestly, because even though it was only about two years, um, I met my husband of 25 years there. I've met some of my best friends, like I friends for life I've met at that place. So yeah, it's definitely a good thing. So when they bring you back to LA, when Roadrunner brings you back to LA, that isn't an LA office there at the time there had been with Bob. Well, there ha- yeah. So, yeah. So there was a gap, I, wasn't there? yeah. So what happened was Bob Nalbandian came in. I know you've talked to Bob. And um, he was kind of working out of his house. And then he had like a little office and Bob was like, they were trying to make him be everything. He was very prep. He had to do press and he had to do radio and he had to do retail and he was overwhelming. And Bob had his own thing. You know, he, you know, makes films now and does podcasts and all this great stuff. And he was like a great guy on the scene and, and the right person for that. But when I'm not exactly sure how he, how Bob parted with them, but when Bob did part with them and Monty started bringing in 
more and more bands, more and more bands were talking about the fact that Roadrunner didn't have a presence in LA. Okay. And so uh, you needed that just for the press, you needed that for the radio, but you also needed that in order to attract other bands. I feel like it was definitely an A&R. It kind of feels like this, when I was saying about mobilization earlier, it's kind of that, isn't it? Because you want to be able to be responsive, especially when you've got Metal Blade across the road. You've got Metal Blade down, uh, sorry, sorry, Epitaph down the road. You've got everyone else that's on the West Coast. You want to also be the guy that's going to the shows and having the conversations on the ground, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, the, and and that's, I think that that's how things like Fear Factory and Machine Head and all those West Coast-based bands kind of came into play because they always know that there was somebody there. But yeah. what really made, what really made like the fiber of that LA office, because one of the things you had asked was, uh, was what was it, what was so important about the LA office? The people were so great. So myself and Kevin Estrada were the first two in there. Kevin Estrada did A and R, um, signed some, you know, signed Spine Shank and anyone, anyone and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of really cool bands. Um, but he was such an entity. He, you know, he was a very well known photographer before this all came to be, and he was he photographed everyone under the sun, and he knew every band manager, and he knew every lawyer, and he knew every booking agent because he was in and out of every he was in and out of three four venues a night at that point. And so he was such a great, a great asset there. But then Roe Coley, you know, he was a Jersey boy. He was working in New York doing this, the, you know, the road crew and that just exploded. And then having him on the West coast, when he decided to move out to the West coast, it got to be like Bob had mentioned in his talk with you, like a lot of people in New York were like, God damn, if I knew there was going to be an LA office, I would have volunteered to move. But I think what Case and Doug wanted was they wanted someone who, could live LA, but also speak New York and, right. and speak to the outside territories, you know, because there was always like Michelle Kerr in the UK doing press, there was always press things in LA that she had to come deal with. And mm -hmm. so people were flying back and forth. And I can't even imagine the expense of that flying people from, you know, the UK to LA because of a big show or whatever. And so having a press person and a radio person and a retail person and an A&R person, and then when they got into that radio time, when it was like the Nickelbacks and the Theory of a Dead Man's and, you know, Black Blackstone Cherry, those kind of things, then they brought in like these kind of almost pop radio guys. They didn't last very long, but, um, you know, but Rob Weldon had been our regional guy out there for the longest time. So it was like Rob and Roe and Kevin and myself, Maria Gonzalez, who had come from New York out to do press, um, and then uh, we had a woman named Michelle who did like sync licensing stuff. She would like get the movie soundtracks and stuff like that. Michelle yeah. Van Arendonk. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Yeah. 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 I tried to reach to her. But I uh, tried to reach her through her. Um, What's she doing now? It's like a, it's like she, a dog. Yeah, her, it's I think her husband, she and her husband, own. they own a dog store. Like a yeah. dog. Yeah. And how would how would you describe like professional dog equipment outlet? It's not a dog shop. I can't, I couldn't. Oh no I no no yeah no like no. I think I think I think it's. Stuff. Yeah, I know. I think yeah, I think it is for working dogs. You know, yeah. like dog like drug sniffing dogs and things like that. It's like they sell like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I, the Roadrunner in LA is such a blind spot, so that's why I kind of I kind of focused a lot of my my questions around that. So okay. feel free to railroad with interesting observations or anything else that you think is important if it does get a bit stale. But it, it was, but you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the, the whys of LA, which is 
just pragmatism, especially as you move into the 21st century. And there's so much integration between the music industry and say, I'm going to call it Hollywood, kind of like conventional mm-hmm. media, which happens yeah. on, on the West Coast. It yeah. just makes a lot of sense. So, Well, that's how- where Rip Magazine was. That was a really big entity then. And yeah, yeah and KNAC, like we had the West Coast of the United States had more active rock radio stations. These were the radio stations that were will- willing to play things like corn and things like Deftones and stuff like that. Um, and that was where like typo negative, life of agony. I mean, you talk to Mark Abramson, Mark Abramson came into Roadrunner New York as my intern because I had an issue. I was having a hard time with deicide. And I'm just like, I'm not really selling this deicide so well. And I think it's because they scare the shit out of me and I don't know how to deal with it. And I don't know how to talk that talk, but I know this guy who could talk the talk. Maybe we'll bring him in as a summer intern and let him work that first deicide record and let him bring that message. So that's when they broke Roadrunner. He had Roadrunner and Road Racer as two separate labels. And Road Racer and RC, these were much harder bands. And then Roadrunner became your Crimson Glories and that kind of stuff that we tried to take to commercial radio. So, and this, a lot of it had to do with distribution chains. You know, we had changed from, from we were, had been with important for a long time. Then we went over to MCA and that was, it was RC was a IRD. RC. And then Road Racer and Roadrunner were MCA, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. We moved over that way. So when the distribution switched, we had to switch names and then the harder bands stayed on the independent distribution side. And Mark, he slayed it, man. He could have like, he like walked in the door. Like I know cannibal corpse personally, like he lived, you know, lived, worked in Buffalo, New York at the radio station there, the college radio station. He is another long Island kid. He and I grew up we didn't know each other back then, but we grew up just a couple miles from each other. And he is probably one of my lifelong friends in that space. He is just so solid. And another, another boomeranger. He was one that left. We always joke that we had to leave in order to find mates. Otherwise, um, Mark and I would have had to either marry each other or we both would have had to marry Monty. So we left, we found mates <laughs> at other labels and then we came back. So, it's how, how was, um, I was going to make a point, but I can't remember. Oh no. Yeah. Also, there's also an AR, an A&R function that's happening in LA as well. Cause at the time that they opened up the LA office, it is like grunge is starting to happen. And yeah. things are starting to there's there's a territorial uh, differential between in the United States as to what output is going to be churned out from whatever's going whoever's going to be on the ground at the time. Was that always the case? Was LA always like completely different from the rest of the world, or was New York always completely different from the rest of the states? I mean, as far as the bands that work there, I think. The, that the radio and the press outlets had a lot to do with that. I mean, Monty, I think our biggest jump into grunge was Grunt Truck. Yeah. You know, Monty got them. And and they were managed by Matt Vaughn, who owns Easy Street Records. Like, he is still, like, the coolest record store in Seattle, which is great. And I still talk to him. But, you know, that came out of that scene, you know. that that Because Case was never one to follow a trend. Mm-hmm. But it, at some point, he would relent. Like, I remember we had a a swing artist called Big Rude Jake, where he was like, okay, (laughs) we'll find a swing artist. You know what I mean? But he never let us, he never let go of the core. Mm -hmm. He always knew. Um, But then there was no denying that when radio started to get bigger and bands like that post, that sort of post-grunge, 
yeah. they called it, you know, the Nickelbacks and the theory of a dead man, that kind of stuff all coming out of Canada. I mean, that definitely, um, that changed everything that changed all of our lives. Like we, Financially, in terms, in, just in, in terms of <laughs> sheer, in terms of sheer gravity and things like that. And, and yeah, like, I mean, you just like I remember, you know, so that the second Nickelback record, the um, Silver Side Up, okay. that came out on 9-11-2001. and I know you would, you would ask the question about the how did I hear about the Def Jam purchase in two thousand one. I, I my son was born in March of two thousand one, so I was we had a Roadrunner office. We worked in the in the relativity IRD offices forever in LA, and then when Case was like, "Yeah, I think we're going to change our distribution, so I think we're going to have to move because MCA." So we moved to Hollywood to this skyscraper that was right next to the club, the Palladium, which was like the wow. biggest, hottest thing at the time, and it was great. And it was on Sunset Boulevard, and we were rocking, and it was great. Um, right down the block from where Amoeba ended up eventually being, but it wasn't there at the time, and it was a one really nice building in a shithole neighborhood. It was horrifying. But, you know, we did what we did and we had covered parking and we were kind of hidden from the, the horrible part of Hollywood. But yeah. Hollywood has changed so much now. Hollywood is a much nicer place to be. Mm-hmm. We were there. And then at one case was like, we need more space. We're going to hire more people. So we need to move up the block. So we moved up towards Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, up by the Whiskey and the Roxy, because Kevin was like, if I have to go to these shows and I have to take photos of people and I have to do this, like, well, can we be a little bit closer to where everything's actually? At that time, everything was happening uh, like within like a two-mile stretch of the Sunset Strip. Mm-hmm. So that's where we moved. And I was about seven months pregnant when we moved. And I went on maternity leave for 11 weeks. And in that period of time was when the whole Def Jam transition happened. So you so were like, I was, shit, am I even going to go back to work, man? <laughs> no, I knew, I knew for sure I was going to go. Believe me, working at a label was way easier than staying home and being a parent. <laughs> so I'm going to hire some really nice women to help me raise this kid. And I'm going to go back to work. And so that's what he did. And, uh, but, but my boss, Michael Cantor at the time was just keeping me up on it. Cause he's like, okay, so we're not going to deal with red anymore. We're going to move over to these people. And I had to start while I'm home, you know, on maternity leave, start calling people and start trying to introducing myself so that as soon as I came back about two weeks later, that transition happened. Yeah. And then my first albums I was presenting like that summer were, um, silver side up and then Iowa from Slipknot. And so I'm walking in being like, this band has a gold record. This is the coolest thing ever. This is going to be huge. And then, yeah, we have this this radio band and they're going to be kind of cool too. (laughs) I never... When I was came out of that presentation, I did this big presentation for Tower, and one of the one of the guys from Tower was like, "Yeah, man, like this is going to blow up." And I go, "I know Slipknot, right?" And he's like, "Oh no, Nickelback." I'm like, "Really?" (laughs) I think I need to I need to start asking more about Nickelback just because. It's Some weird. people at Roadrunner are are a little Nickelback resistant because the real hardcore metal people. It was a. It was. If there had been social media back then, we'd had trolls constantly. Yeah, because I, it was just a different. It was such a different turn. But I was like, I was. Ra- I'm more. It's so strange because Nickelback is like not like the, the the two flagships of that particular era, right? <laughs> Metalheads certainly would like veer loads more towards Slipknot. But me at the time, I was just a kid. I kind of related more to Nickelback. In fact, my more nostalgic music moments at that time were mostly centered around Nickelback. But 
How could they not be? They were on the radio all the time. Like exactly. that was that was when we beefed up and ended up with like a ten guy radio team. Wow. And okay. yeah, and we had regionals everywhere. We had shows everywhere, and it was it was like nothing we had ever seen. It was yeah. fabulous. And, and it, it took one three months to convince the rest of the label to sign them. Um, it was day. I'm going to say um, Dave Blanco was definitely the radio the head of radio at the time was yeah. definitely a big reason why that happened the way it did. And at that point, so Ron was there, Lanco was there, um, and Derek Shulman was there. And the mm-hmm. and that culmination of those three people that were, I don't want to say they were anti-Monte at all, but it was they were all in a mindset that was way different from what Monty was signing. So Monty had his people and Monty was doing what he was doing and and mm-hmm. God love him because the slipknots of the world you know, exist because of Monty and, yep. and Machine Head and Fear Factory and all those fantastic bands, Killswitch Engage and and um, Life of Agony, like all these bands that came through, you know, with the under Monty's uh, reign. Um, Gitter, obviously, I think Killswitch Kill, Kill was a Gitter guy, you know, Gitter yeah. band, you know, but it was just that whole element was so great. But what Ron and Dave Lanco and Derek Shulman came in to a, a sales meeting that we had and he goes, I'm the person that's going to go it's going to take you from selling tens of thousands of records to selling hundred thousands of records. So put your boots on and get ready for a ride. And I was just like, okay, this is singer from gentle giant. I'm going to carry I'm going to, I'm going to listen to you. You've been doing, you sign Bon Jovi. I'm going to listen to you. (laughs) Uh, So it's, yeah. Again, it's just like for me, rose tinted glasses, because I know there's obviously backlash around Nickelback for a number of reasons. And a lot of that starts from, if to discuss Nickelback as an entity, you have to start talking about internet culture, radio culture, general music industry stuff to actually try and unpack the whole thing, right? So I'm not going to try and bore us to death with it now, but it's so difficult for me because I, I, I was already like sat there listening to it as, you know, as a young man. It's like, so I was already behind that, that mirrored glass really. I think people were, I think people that liked Nickelback were shocked they were on Roadrunner. That was the first one. Yeah. And the second one was, I don't know what it is, but just in popular culture, they seem to be the universal adjective for things that people hate. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that they were willing to poke fun at themselves and let that be part of it. Mm. But it's just so funny. Like there are so many references in television shows and movies and whatever. And it's like, oh, well, at least you're not Nickelback. You know, that it's just so funny. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it's now Imagine Dragons. I think that's now the band. I think Nickelback has sort of like kept just hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. And now they've kind of, they've done that, that transition that bands always do, which is they either, not that there's a peak and there's a drop, but there's over time they've found their audience. Mm-hmm. And just by chance, the audience are there in droves. So I think it's kind of like by the numbers to make fun of Nickelback these days. So now I think Imagine Dragons are the ones where it's like this band are absolutely fucking this. This is the 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 scapegoat for all things bad music. Yeah, so. here we call it the flyover states. So it's like you have New York and you have L.A., <laughs> Seattle, whatever. And so we always joke about about the most new and creative things come in on the oceans. The people that don't have oceans just get what we give them. And they have the radio stations, they have the press outlets, and they they like trucks, they like rock, they like to cut the arms off of their shirts. I mean, it's not stereotypical at all. It's definitely what happens, but they also are 
diehard loyal for rock bands. And yeah. so Nickelback, anytime Nickelback had a song that had any sort of sexual innuendo, that was the biggest thing in Detroit. It was the biggest thing in Minnesota. It was the biggest thing in Iowa and it would explode. And to this day, my son's 20 years old, like way younger than he should know. But Rockstar is still his favorite Nickelback song. <laughs> song is just great. That's crazy. How are you doing for time, by the way? Are you okay oh, for time? I'm fine. That's fine. I can. I'll, I'll, I'll love <laughs> like I said, holiday weekend, man. I got nothing. Uh, is a holiday weekend for you as well? Yeah. Well, holiday we have it's it? it's uh, Memorial Day. Okay, we, we just we just call it a bank holiday where the banks shut on Monday. I think it's, mm -hmm. we call it a bank holiday to set the expectation that you're not going to get anything done over this weekend period. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Fine by me, though. I'm not fucking working on Monday. Anyway, uh, again, talking about the geography of the whole arrangement, was there ever a challenge? Because from a promotional perspective, your entire job is to take get the volume of promotion that you're putting out there and take the listens and take the runs of certain records and turn them into sales and make that transfer happen. Mm -hmm. Was there a challenge territorially to push certain records? Like I know Bloody Kisses was the campaigned record. It's going to be, this is Case's first gold on Roadrunner. This is going to be the label's first goal. It's going to be a whole thing. And we're going to calculate it down to a T. Was there a challenge with you being in LA? Was it a different market, a different category of things to do we had we had global priorities and definitely typo negative was a global priority there was no doubt about that as global was sepultura right. um you know where everybody all at the same time so the international offices every territory was all working on that project number one all the time then there were more developing artists and at that point machine head was a more developing artist coal chamber was a more developing artist Fear Factory had jumped pretty quick, you know, so it wasn't it like it was within probably a year of um, Mortal, the very first Mortal Kombat compilation where Fear Factory had a track and got their first gold plaques. I remember delivering those plaques to them at a bar and having pictures, you know, taken for the press and stuff um, that all of a sudden they're, you know, manufacturer and all these records started to come in and those started to go gold. So yeah. once once that typo negative record went gold then it was like oh roadrunner is a label that can make things go, go gold and so every it up our presence everywhere credibility you know? as so, well yeah and so we had that's when we expanded our sales staff we realized that national accounts which were all based um at that point out of minneapolis so scott stiglich i know he was in one of the photos that you said scott stiglich was a guy that we had in Chicago. He moved to Minneapolis and started working the Best Buys and the Walmarts and the Music Lands and all this different kind of stuff. Um, we just we just got an opportunity to expand. So we ended up. I started out with that LA office. I was the only regional person, just mm -hmm. doing like Bob Nalbandian had said. You're doing a little bit of press, a little bit of radio, a little bit of retail, and trying to be all things to all people. And then all of a sudden, every one of those jobs that I had, there was a person doing that job full time. And then there were radio people across the country and there were press people across the country. You know, it's just like, it just grew and grew and grew. So um, more manpower, definitely, you know, more sales, gold records, things like that got us the ability to, to have more manpower. But I think on the West Coast, we had to develop a story, both press, radio, retail, whatever, for bands like Coal Chamber and bands like, Fear Factory and bands like Machine Head until those bands got on tour. You know, Cole Chamber went on tour with, um, with Slipknot and Machine Head. And it was interesting seeing Slipknot 
kind of start in a, an opening situation with some of our bands and then go beyond. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I think that that our responsibility at that point was to break the smaller, develop the smaller bands so that they could go onto a national tour. And you mentioned create a story with the developing bands. What does that mean? Basically, a sales in a market. If you had a band that was from LA and somebody could go look at sales in LA and they weren't at the top of their game. It's like, if you're not big in your hometown, where, you, where else are you going to be big? So things like that, they were just, you know, at that point methods and ways that you could go in and, and work with people and be able to boost the presence of an artist as far as their sales numbers. Mm -hmm. um, as far as radio, everybody had like hometown shows and things like that. Hometown, you know, the local, we had Phoenix had radio, um, LA had, we had KUPD or uh, KNAC at the time, Bakersfield, San Francisco, Sacramento, Seattle. There were all these hubs for the heavier music. And yeah. so we would just run, we would run the bands up and down. Mark Abramson and I spent more time in vans driving, following typo negative up and down the coast, trying to get them established on the West coast when they were just in vans at the time. You know, so it's like that was that was our mission was you take this territory and you go up and down this market, peddling your wares and peddling your story to everybody until you could start to see it matter in sound scan reporting or in radio reporting or whatever. Right, okay. So that then you could say, OK, this was the biggest band in Los like the like coal chamber was the perfect coal chamber blew up. And then it was like, and then they got to go on the Ozfest, and then they got to go on this thing. But you had to have a certain amount of presence in your hometown numbers wise that data that would back up making a national person take notice so i guess the this when you say create a story it's the correlation between activity and and output where it's like we ran the band through the number uh, through the, the the gauntlet and now we're at this point mm -hmm. so we can therefore recognize trajectory and therefore recognize potential and get more money out okay to invest in that but yeah exactly. that's the exactly. that's the story okay yeah we were talking earlier about you know, disparities between physical and digital and old days and new days. And you mentioned mm -hmm. targeted marketing. Now I imagine targeted marketing back in those days is a lot different from algorithmically big data targeted marketing these days. Mm -hmm. So how would Roadrunner classify its audience and how would it, how would it compartmentalize its demographic? Is that a silly oh, question? Oh, oh, we were the, we were the, we were the wet dream of the teenage boy. I mean, that was what we went for. It was, we had this, in California, we always call it the crystal meth belt. It's like this run from inland Los Angeles up through Sacramento. And it was where all the rock clubs were. And it was where everybody, it was the, the five freeway where everybody drove through and everybody was all, but it was like, it, it wasn't like this kind of, like you see Florida had like this bro scene where everybody was, you know, doing dancing and, <laughs> you know, on ecstasy or whatever. You know, we had like the serious just, pot smoking rockers. And that was our, that was definitely our demographic. And I think Roe and his street team definitely tapped into that demographic because he was getting college kids and young adults to get out there, go to shows, hand out stickers, hand out things just to promote the bands. And I think that was um, definitely something that helped on the West coast for sure. I think that's one of those, it's one of those, un how do I describe it? It's just, an, it's such a non-romantic part of the job right? The street teaming. But at the same time, for me on the other side of it, I couldn't get rid of the street teamers every time I, you know, and it felt like a bit more of a unit. So I think that there's certainly something there as to how I need to understand what other labels were doing with their street teams. 
Um, I know they were using at, third parties. You know, at that point, the only other people that I realized that had street teams at that time was um, Velvet Hammer Management, and that was System of Downs label, System yeah. of Downs Management Company. They were there was kids at everywhere you went handing you stuff for System of a Down, and Roe was such on the early part of that. He was pretty ingenious in the way that he he gave people t-shirts and he gave them different things and he'd give them different perks. And we would get like these, we were always talking about these like radio singles, like these, like it would be a CD with like one song that you would send to a radio station. And now in hindsight, realizing how valuable that was because people felt like they were part of something. People felt like if they got advanced music or whatever, that they were in the know and they would be willing to like go to the ends of the earth to help that band if they felt like they were part of it. So we'd have meet and greets and we'd have, you know, street team meet and greets and things like that. Just make everybody feel like they were part of what was going on. And, and it just kept the loyalty in it. You know, it would kind of, these kids would just ooze this. It was fantastic mm. to watch. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's something I need to unpack. I need to, I need to dedicate. I don't know if you can tell, I tend to find little assets of the label. I try to really drill in. And mm -hmm. if you listen to it chronologically, you'll understand when I drop something and move on to the next bit. Mm -hmm. LA is obviously the flavor of the week. <laughs> and then once I <laughs> once I understand LA and its place in the whole thing, I'll probably move into something. I'll probably try and tackle Slipknot and start knocking. Well, I, I think I think you, and I'm not sure how best that you would tackle touring. Monty mm. could probably tell you um, the better booking agents to talk to because some of the, there were so, so many people at the time. And I don't even know if all of them are still in that business, but there were just, just an entity that would take over the world. You know, when you, once you got a band on tour and you got a band into a, a tour cycle, you know, they could go everywhere in the world. These, like I would sit back in LA and be jealous because, you know, the guys from fear factory would come in the office and be like, we went to Japan and went to Australia. Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, damn it. <laughs> I just I think play guitar. You get to go everywhere. I think the question is around touring, and it's not for one, one for you to answer, but it's one that's sort of on my on my wall there. I'm like, why why does this resonate so much? Why did the Black Crusade tour in 2007? Why did it sell out fucking everywhere? Because obviously mm -hmm. it was it was the lineup, but it everyone, no one was equal on that lineup. And I don't know, it, was it more than the sum of its parts? Because they were all Roadrunner bands, and they're all were shit up, apart from Arch Enemy, which weren't Roadrunner at that time or ever Roadrunner, it doesn't matter. But the point yeah. being is someone's doing the numbers somewhere and going March, France, that's when in between these tours, someone's doing crunching the numbers and doing that. And that's what I'd love to find out because there's definitely there's a design, it's a method to the madness. And that's what this whole thing is fucking about. Um, Mark Palmer's going to know. Anything that's about, about European, Mark Palmer's going to know. Alon may have a good idea too, mm. but Mark Palmer's going to know for sure. He, he yeah. knew where all the bodies were buried everywhere. He's, he's not coming anywhere near me as Mark Palmer, unfortunately. <laughs> his, his son's been in touch, but Mark won't. Hang on. This is me making a cut. That's me editing it out. Um, yeah, there's, some, there's certain people that won't speak to me, and that's completely fine because of how, how annoying would it be if you worked at Nuclear Blast in the higher-ups and then you saw Monty and Mark talking about their ex-girlfriend every week. You know what I mean? That's, I, I totally get it. Um yeah, there's something, and I need to figure. Maybe this is a Michelle Kerr question as well. It's like understanding territorially how the the UK had a very special relationship with Roadrunner bands, and it's something to do with the infrastructure. It's something to do with how they hit these cities, and it's something to do with how they utilize these Friday through to Sunday nights. I think, in my experience, being there, um, but again, that's something I just need to unpack. Yeah, if Michelle's if Michelle's willing to talk, she was such a part of that. 
you know, there was so what a lot of people in the U.S. used to equate the success in the U.K. Because, I mean, record bands would go to the U.K. and they'd never want to come back. They'd be like, we're gold. We're this. We're, you know what I mean? It's like they would go over there and be the hugest thing. I remember um, one of Ron's bands, Medina Lake. Like, yeah. I think one of those guys ended up moving to the U.K. because he was just like, every I'm a rock star here. <laughs> you know? Chicago, I'm just a guy walking down the street, you know, my hometown. It's becoming more apparent because when I went to the shows, it was like, this is the best night of the tour. And I was like, oh, fuck off, man. I used to say that to every, everyone that walks through here, you say that to. But actually, now that I'm looking at it a bit more academically, it was definitely like there's something special about this, UK especially, but obviously other European territories. And you get it with like bands like Doggy Dog. Like they weren't very big in the US, but they were fucking mm-hmm. huge over yeah. here and in, um, in Europe. So it's... There's something certainly to unpack there. That's for sure. But, I um, think audiences too. That's what they like. Even the interrupters were like, we could not believe the kind of response we got. They did like their first like headline UK tour about a year and a half ago. And they were just blown away at, at the responses. The fans are just so, so loyal. I mean, mm-hmm. probably the coolest thing for us, you know, very brief period of time at Roadrunner, but are, are working with Biffy Clyro. That to yeah. me was one of the most eye-opening things to see a band that could have number one records in the UK and sell out Wembley and do all this different kind of stuff. And they come over here and they're in a van in a parking lot at the Warp Tour, you know? And that's how I met them. And I would always be like, what's it like? Do you play Wembley? What's it, you know, it's just to me, it was just so fascinating, the dichotomy. This is a huge country and it's hard to really get a foothold if you're not on the radio and some things work here and some things don't. Why Nickelback worked when it personally, I think Biffy Claro is the finest band that has ever walked the planet. There is no, they can do no wrong in my book. I love, I have every single one of their records. I buy everything. I am bundles day one. As soon as everything goes up, I have never, you know, I worked on puzzle, which is such an integral part of their career, yeah. but just having seen what happens to them in this country it's a shame on america <laughs> shame on I you i wonder if like the the cultural export conversation is kind of resonant of what you were saying of the flyover states and things happen to those states and obviously like our side of the world has a very strong relationship with america's exports and vice versa there's something there's something resonant there that's worth unpacking because japan as well is another beast from the east that yeah. really clicks with some stuff but absolutely doesn't with others mm-hmm. and if we're all human and we're all admitting that music brings us together there's got to be some way that there's got to be some way we bridge these this understanding of how we're interacting with different exports yeah, yeah it's crazy but, shit, but i but. think i think streaming could be that because yeah. on global platforms you get to experience more stuff that you might not normally you know but the fact that there's like, what, 64,000 songs a day being fed into Spotify and, mm. and DSPs right now, it's, there's a lot to cut through. You know, it used to be you really had to have something incredibly special to get a record deal and to get noticed and things like that. And there are so many subgenres and sub little kind of clicks now that people can find their, their audience. Mm. And it's a way, it's a much nicer time for an artist, I think, because you can find your audience. Yeah. And not everybody wants to be Nickelback. You no. know, it's just it's just not I think there's like something one thing that's not talked about is China. I think China's gonna start exporting some fucking insane metal in the next few years. I think yeah. some, there's a there's a there's a kettle over there and it's just starting to whistle. As the DSPs start to the you know the, the Western DSPs start to get the opportunity to be there, like Apple and 
Spotify and stuff like that. It's going to be different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, speaking about this kind of like the mathematics of it all, what do you think was Roadrunner's most prominent back office function? Because we, as we said earlier, it's the case in Monty show and it's, it's all about the bands and the music that's put out. And we understand our relationship with the brand through those, those eyes and those uh, perspectives. But as I said earlier, a lot of the workflow and a lot of the infrastructure which it's resting upon is one massive helpful part as to how everything got out there. What do you think is the most important bit? It's funny because my husband works at the label too. And last night we were looking over your questions and one of the, he's like, what do you think he means by back office function? <laughs> I'm like, so do you mean the people that did, that weren't the A&R teams and the people that were behind the scenes that were getting Correct. things? One example, the one example is, um, what I'll tell you how that question got born. And you can feed this back to him and maybe it'll make sense to him. But Roe was talking about an intranet. There was a bespoke intranet that was made for Roadrunner um, by the IT guys. And that's where you guys would do your administration. It's where you'd go on, you'd log on and go, all right, I need to get, I need to order some promo CDs. And it'd be done through this intranet thing. You wouldn't have to pick up the phone necessarily. You wouldn't have to catch anyone in the corridor. It was done through this particular portal. And that for me is a massive being an IT guy myself that's a massive back office function obviously you've you've also got the finance guys who are going right Monty wants us to spend 50 grand on this band we've only got 25 who's gonna who's gonna be the guy that that crunches the numbers and gets the most value out of it blah blah blah, blah. that's what I mean by back office those okay. kind of decisions and the brains that aren't necessarily the sexy bits well the lawyers and the contract <laughs> people the concept that that like I said, 360 deals like outside of Roadrunner, the first time I heard of a 360 deal was with Warner and Lior Cohen and Paramore. And so it was like Paramore and it was all the rage. And it was like 360 deal. So everything that Haley Williams does, the label entity has the ability to get a piece of in exchange for them making her a huge priority. So it was like, if she paid a concert, they got a little bit. If she had merch, they got a little bit. If she had publishing, they got a little bit. And we were all sitting there going, Case has been doing this for 20 years. Like, why is this such a big deal? Like this, we just thought that was how the world was. And so Blue Grape, obviously being able, one thing that Blue Grape did that was, that was so far beyond or forefront of what other um, artists had done or label merch companies had done was they understood the European and the ex-US territories really well. And there right. were certain companies, there were certain companies, certain countries where in order to sell without paying huge tariffs, you would have to have something made in that country. So Blue Grape, that whole team, they had people like, and I couldn't actually tell you which country, say it was Poland or whatever. Say it was like, you would have to pay a 20% tariff if you brought stuff into Poland that wasn't manufactured in Poland. They would have a person at the border that would pick up stuff in a truck and go somewhere and slap labels on that said made in Poland on that stuff, no matter where it was made. And then when they sold it, it said it was made in Poland. They didn't have to pay the tariffs. Wow. There were okay. other places that if you had an, uh, items that were quote unquote damaged, you didn't have to pay fees on those. And so they would take like the top 10 shirts and they would rip them. And then the person would open the box and be like, oh, obviously these are damaged. And then we go, and then everything underneath would be cool. But it, like, and it was little tricks like that yeah. that gave them the opportunity to break into territories. And if you ever get a chance to talk to Max or Gloria, 
Gloria was like Roadrunner knows all the tricks and all the back ways of saving a band money across the board, whether it was just like little international fees or anything like that. They always had, and it was because we had such a web of people, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it definitely goes back to the people. Um, the one I'm going to say that because Sean McGoldrick was one of the big IT guys and Rich Perkins, Rich Perkins is still, I believe at Atlantic now. And, um, and Sean's kind of a, a, a real estate investor mogul yes. guy, but they had come up with this idea and I'm going to say, I'm going to look at my notes real quick to see what year it was. But it was, so iTunes came out in 2001. Yep. They were like, oh, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not conceit, positive <laughs> attitude. So they were like, why should we, why should we? have somebody that determines the pricing, that determines this, that takes a fee off the top when it's basically just file sharing. So we'll do it ourselves. And so they came up with something called The Vault. So for the first, we did not have any of our stuff on iTunes for the first year that it existed purely because we were doing an experiment to see if we could not just do it ourselves. Now we're what, 30 years removed from that? And you look mm. and or 20 years or so, you look and you see how every single sort of um, content owning entity is doing their own streaming service. So you have Disney Plus, you have Apple Plus, you have this, that, the other thing. This case had this idea so long ago <laughs> because at that point, really, Apple was like the Netflix. It was where everybody was, everybody had to be. You had to basically live within their rules. Mm -hmm. And he was a rebel and our New York tech guys were like, we can make this work. It's not that hard. But the problem was the delivery system. So you would have to go on a website, you would buy something and then they would email it to you. And, uh -huh. and, and you know how much volume that takes up in someone's hard drive back then when no one had like more than like a, you know, 250 hard drive, whatever. It was like, you crash your computer, you know, you want one album and you'd crash your computer. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't have the functionality to mode into a platform that could run on a device and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, I think it was 2002 when we finally started doing interacting with digital accounts mm -hmm. in, in a real way. At that point, we had had digital marketing and we had had digital sales. And there was a guy named Ed Rivadavia who's still in the business, who I still talk to. Um, he was... The he wanted to be the digital marketing person and he was working on our website. He worked on um, when Roadrunner started having like sort of a video presence and things like that. When all of these entities started to exist, he was the one that was kind of helping put all that together. And yeah. that was his, he was creative. He wanted to be that guy. He did not want to be a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And so I was in LA and that was where Apple was and Real Networks, which was Rhapsody, which became all these other things that was in Seattle. And so all of these kind of tech companies that were doing music were on the West Coast. So they were like, well, you do sales and you're on the West Coast. So why don't you be that person? So that's when I started being the digital sales. So I did digital sales for all the accounts that were based out here. And then I was doing the West Coast physical sales as well. Right. Okay. And okay. and. Op and op director of operations for the office. So it's so it's like of like of all the things that the Roadrunner saga. We're going to call it a saga now. That's what okay. I'm going to fucking call it because it, it is a saga. <laughs> it's a saga. We go, yeah, we go straight. It starts with the disco era. It's like almost. Uh, this is my own narrative because I've had to fucking pull them together. 
It starts with disco and Kay's coming out of a disco sort of infrastructure and doing something on his own. We have early fucking metal, a new wave British heavy, um, new wave British heavy metal. We then move into CDs, like first CDs coming out of Japan. There's a first innovation there. Then we're trying to move over to the US and there's an emerging scene. There's basically so many fucking things it gets involved in. And now you just brought in like the fucking tech bubble that burst in the early 2000s. It's absolutely insane how many fingers are in how many pies in innovation in general throughout that 31-ish years period. It's absolutely mm -hmm. fucking bonkers. And I'm well, sort of like just... Uh, uh, the, I'm, I'm going to have to do more research now. I'm going to like look at a whole other well, thing. It, what's crazy too is the... is So you have iTunes at that moment is deciding what your stuff is worth. Yeah. And they say, you could be Ozzy or you could be Fear Factory, or you could be my neighbor who plays the drums all night long. Every single one of you stuff is the same value. I'm losing a connection. That's a, that's a rough one right. to swallow because we feel like, you got Gabby? Yeah, you're good. It's, it lagged a little bit. Now, we, now we're back. Okay. It just, it just said, yeah, your internet is unstable. Um, I don't know. Saturday morning. Um, so, so at that point, iTunes was saying to, and that pissed off our, some of our higher ups. Like, how can you tell me that Ozzy Osbourne is worth the same as the guy next door that plays the drums? Like, it doesn't make any sense, but it, but that's what they deemed it. And then you get in on our side, on the retail side, you get in a Best Buy. Best Buy came kind of out of nowhere. And Best Buy was like, you know what? We've decided we want to sell refrigerators to people, but we need to get them in the door. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer really, really cheap CDs to their kids. We're going to put them in the front of the store. The kids are going to want to come. And then the parents are going to have to do something else. So they're going to walk around and buy TVs and refrigerators and washing machines and whatever else they need. Mm. And so- there was that element that was basically devaluing music because they decided that doesn't matter how much you had to spend to make a CD or a recording or a video or anything, but it was going to be $9.99 or less. And you had to sell it to them for $7.99 or less. Mm. And then Walmart is like $7.99. We want, if they're going to get $7.99, we are going to charge you, we want $5.99 price. So then it was like $2 more. And then Amazon came in and Amazon was like, you know what? If all you're giving all these cheap prices to people, we're going to match their price, but we're not going to ask you to pay less. So it was like, so if we could go to seven, if we could get $7.99 from Best Buy, we could also get $7.99 for Amazon. That's how much they would pay the label. And then they would down the price of what they sold to match Walmart's. Mm -hmm. So they were taking the, they were willing to take the loss. Walmart and Best Buy were not willing to take the loss. To this day, both of those still want, you know, 10, 15%, 20%, whatever, less than everybody else in order to carry stuff. And it, it music started to get devalued. So I understood like how the whole Napster thing started because every once in a while it was like, well, if music doesn't have a value, why don't we just share it for free? And then that yeah. craziness starts to happen. Um, and it, it's unfortunate because there's probably not another product and I hate that I'm always the person who refers to them as products, but they're my job. Everything in my job always had a dollar sign attached to it. Everybody else could be cool, could be hip, could be hype, could be whatever. I was always dollar sign was attached somehow. Commerce is that way. And art and commerce can live together very well. That's why rich guys live, you know, rock stars live in mansions and stuff. <laughs> at this point, if every outside entity was telling you that this had no value, 
you know, it's frustrating as hell because there isn't another thing right now that you could spend the exact same amount of money for that you did 25 or 30 years ago. And they expect that with music. It's horrifying. Let's unpack that a little bit because one, we're talking now between sort of like 2003 through sort of 2000, I'd say 10, which was like the age of piracy, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Um, until people started really putting their hands in the pockets and getting the Spotify subscriptions. Marcus referred to this as like the glorious. And I'm interested in that because there's obviously a revenue disparity. Disparity? Disparity? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a revenue conflict because obviously this is where the music itself, as you say, is being devalued. So presumably, Doug's looking at the PL sheets every year and going, fuck, something's going horrifically wrong on the retail side. Mm-hmm. But Max is still calling it the Glorious, and I'm calling it the Glorious because that's when I first saw Trivium and Killswitch mm-hmm. and, and, and all that stuff. So I, I, let me try and form this into a question which is remotely palatable for broadcast. Um, <laughs> how did Roadrunner mobilize against piracy, apart from the vault, I guess? I mean, I feel like so much of... We had really special packages... You know, yeah. when you, you looked, I mean, I, art, I feel like the, the pieces that we put out were pieces of art, like some of those Slipknot records, the art and just the elements that were involved. Um, Machine Head was another one. They always had like special stickers and special things inside. I feel like we were a collector's market. People were completists that were Roadrunner fans. And so I don't necessarily think that that many of them understood that you had to choose between a download and a physical piece. I feel like sometimes I used to feel like the Apple store was, you know, the showroom for the physical things that people would get later. But was it, did it hit the bottom line as much as I'm making it out to have done the privacy I mean, stuff? Um, I know, I didn't feel like it did. I think probably someone in our finance department would have a better view on that. Right. Okay. But we, we just, as we were moving along, with bands, our bands were getting so much bigger and the money that they were generating was getting so much bigger and having a little piece of the merch and a little piece of the part of the publishing and a little piece of all these different elements, I think definitely helped to keep it afloat. So I, mm-hmm. I couldn't say about what the, what the financial impact was, but I was not, you know, out there protesting with Lars from Metallica the way other people were, because it just, it just seemed like the next natural progression. People, you know, now everybody's music lives on their phone. You know, you never would have mm. thought that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's a different, if it is, it is a different discussion, which is, did the industry mobilize against it properly? And was it equipped to deal with it? Was it was it gluttonous and thought it wouldn't make an impact? And obviously it did in some ways. But I guess for the Roadrunner's case, we are in a post-Slipknot and Silver Side Up world. So it's like, mm-hmm. the graph's looking up every year, man. It's going, yeah. so it, maybe it's, it's difficult to assess the damage in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll definitely have to ask Doug that one. Yeah, Doug would have a better, a much better understanding. Doug is Doug has got like an almost Rain Man like quality for numbers, yes. so he could probably tell you every spreadsheet from every year. He's he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I love that guy. He hired me twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's close in on let's close in at the end. I've gone over my my own questions, but mm-hmm. I. My remit, as I discussed earlier, is like trying to find certain things and focus on those to further my understanding. But you, your tenure stretches into this period, which I've not touched yet. And I'm too scared to ring up my gator again and say, let's talk about this era. Because oh, I love again, you. Oh, yeah, man. I, but I'm, I'm just like, 
with again with Nickelback Slipknot, everything post two thousands. I'm trying. I'm not trying to avoid, but it's just. I, I felt like I was a little bit more there and it's kind of difficult for me to unpack certain things, but we are touching on things which I'm like academically engaged with and compelled by, which is like, ah, oh, yeah, piracy. Ah, oh, yeah, these retail um, outlets which are sort of booking to this new digital age. Because in the UK, we had HMV. That was our one. And it was, it was selling CDs for 14 quid up until 2012 when I was working there. And even I was like, well, this isn't surprising anyone <laughs> that this is going to come crashing down. Um, but... I mean, when we lost Tower Records, that was huge, you know, yeah. but losing Tower Records, I don't think had as much to do with downloads as it had to do with the business model of Tower Records. The business right. model of Tower Records was you should have one of everything that everybody that ever existed put out in case somebody wants to have the third deep purple record at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. Like you just, it was the, it was the keeping the full catalogs there mm. and keeping everything in stock all the time that, that drove them out of business and some money mismanagement because they had, it still exists in Japan. It still exists in Dublin. Like there are still tower record stores and they're beautiful stores and they look, now there's somebody bought the rights to the name and they're doing it online now. And so now you see tower record stuff, you know, everywhere, but it's still like I have um, a gentleman I work with, um, Eric Cherry in Japan. He, you know, Tower Records is still a huge thing for him there. HMV yeah. as well. It's like they just, you know, I just I feel like certain retailers fell and they blamed iTunes and they blamed, you know, mm. that. But also these guys were snorting co cocaine off the back of limos in the parking lot. I mean, they were living high on the hog. They were seriously big party time. It was unbelievable the amount of money that was being spent by people at these different entities. Not all of them, obviously. And you might want to cut that cocaine thing out. But <laughs> just that concept of, you know what I mean? It's like, if you, I always felt like I, I lived 20 years too late in all of this, mm. because I missed all of the fantastically huge trips to the Bahamas and the giving people drugs in exchange for top rating and all it's like it was just we just worked our asses off you know I we worked really is, hard and we love what we did i think this is really the thing when it comes to cyclical natures of industries where where you see a massive downturn in certain economies and in certain industries like for me i was going to use that exact thing for pubs so loads of like great pubs in where i live have closed and it's like this is really terrible and it's like yeah but half the money I spent there ended up in Gary's nose. And I know that and you know that. So <laughs> exactly. really, when there, when there is an industry-level evolution, let's call it digital or let's call it craft beer in this analogy, there's a different thinking. But there's also what people don't talk about is there's a different fucking standard. Mm -hmm. Because when people break through these industries and start spearheading certain movements, it's not because... It's not fluke. It's because they worked really fucking hard. And all of a sudden, yeah. the bar rises with them. Mm -hmm. And some things just fall under. Mm -hmm. So I'll keep the cocaine analogy in because I think it all wraps up now. If that's <laughs> it, all right with you, obviously. It ties <laughs> in. It ties in, yeah. It does, yeah. What did, did Rodona struggle with anything in the in the later noughties? Like when, um, was radio still very prominent? Like, for example, from a promotional um, standpoint, was it still the main, um, obviously it might not have been the main promotional tool or vehicle but how did that change? It, it, if it, it's funny because you always can tell from a manager or a lawyer when they walk in the door with a band, 
who they want to meet. They okay. always wanted to meet the radio people. That okay. was just like, who are your radio people? Where do they go? What do they do? You know? And that was a big, that was, yeah, that was definitely the driving force. It was mainly, and because MTV was kind of a ghetto for us, you know, you had the headbangers mm-hmm. ball and things like that, but we never got like real mainstream, you know, and then MTV became this sort of reality show thing. And so we never really, I don't feel like anything broke on that space. Um, probably after my time, YouTube probably helped a great deal, um, yeah. you know, with the, the later Roadrunner stuff. But yeah, I feel like radio, radio, terrestrial radio was the big driver for sure. Yeah. I guess this is the thing though, and this is me unpacking things as I go. You'll notice I just elaborate and try and further my understanding <laughs> yeah. out loud, like an, at, at risk of looking like an idiot, but that's fine. Um, radio isn't, radio as a function in a label isn't radio solely. It's probably, and again, I'm speaking out of turn. It's the relationship. It's where all the relationships are in my head. That's what, that's where it is. You could go to radio to get people on the radio. Great. Or you can get to radio to talk to the people out who are the outliers in that territory, in that particular industry to move certain brands or bands or things across many other spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. That's the function. And that's the value. It's not talk to Mark Emerson because you'll get onto Howard Stern. It's talk to Mark Emerson because he knows 10 people in further up north who can maybe push a little bit more and start turning those, as I say, listens and that exposure into sales. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's just, again, I'm just meditating out loud. It's not just getting bands on the radio, but it's, it's over a 20, 30 year period, having your ear to the ground as to what's happening in those other offices where the radio stations are. Mm-hmm. Like I imagine in your, I, I'm going to bring up a name, that I have no connection with. So Cindy Maxwell, you'll have spoken to her a lot in your tenure at LA. And I know mm-hmm. she moved across a number of different radio stations. So it's the relationship you presumably had with her, or at least the radio team had with her, that cross-pollinates the Roadrunner brand across a number of different things over a long period of time. It's not about just getting anyone on the radio at the time or whatever Monty's pushing. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just- well, the thing is, because radios were local businesses. Mm. So a terrestrial radio station in... Detroit, Michigan had a record store that they dealt with and they had a liquor store that they dealt with and all their advertisers and they would tie in events. So it would be like, okay, so we're going to get so-and-so on the radio, Slipknot, Nickelback, Fear Factory, whoever. They'll come in, they'll do the morning show, but then they're also going to go to this place and they're going to meet fans. And so we're going to bring people from that are listened to on the radio to this record store and that record store is going to promote it. Well, then that record store is going to say like, well, there's this bar down the block and they sponsor what we do. And so it was a network and now it's a social network because now all these people interact on each other's socials and interact on each other's, you know, sites and such. But it was, it was a connection where when you came into a market, like even a band would go and play a radio show for free. So that they could get the exposure, so they could get guaranteed placements and guaranteed stuff. But then they would also get this relationship in that market with the local vendors and the local audience. And then the theory being, don't pay, we won't pay you now, but then you'll get paid tenfold when you come back on your real tour because we set you up as being an entity in this market. And so yeah. you could back then you could look at a sound scan on any you know, sound scan report, Nielsen report on any particular band for sales. And you could tell, I could tell you what store made that happen. It's like, this band is from Brazil, but they're huge in Phoenix. This band is from Australia, but they're mm. huge in Detroit. And you could tell 
that the relationship that those stores and those radio stations had. So the radio stations got free shows and everybody else got some sort of free promotion. And I, I would ask more, what did that do to the touring, paid touring? Like how many bands yeah. ba basically had to schedule their lives around where radio station shows were. I see it now with Christmases, summer festivals, things like that. It's like, how many of these, how many times do you have to go to a market, pay your crew, pay your bus driver, pay everybody to not get paid so that mm. the next time you go through, you know, you get paid tenfold. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's also like a personal aspect from the, from the artist perspective, isn't it? Because the instruction that day is, all right, you go and be a rock star. And what that means is, you're going to be the product that goes into the radio stations to get the pictures. You're going to go to the guys like a store to get the picture and do the event. You're going to go to this and do that. You are absolutely 100% bona fide a product today because mm -hmm. it might pay off tenfold down the line. And it sounds like a cheap deal would, do, you know, do what we say and we'll get exposure. But it's like you say, if we actually look at the numbers between how it affected the touring, that's what, that's the res resolution of that transaction of you're the rock star for the day. Mm -hmm. But then look at something going forward, like a Sirius XM, you know, yeah. talk about Howard Stern, when Howard Stern moved from terrestrial radio into Sirius and Sirius generates enough money that bands get paid directly money from Sirius. So you're getting paid for your radio spin. So then you're starting to realize the value of doing that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. you know, now you're getting it in, in mailbox money, but it's just a different entity. And yeah. so I feel like promotion is definitely... I just remember Nickelback at one point, and and I hate to bring them into the conversation again if it's not what you want to talk about. Oh no, I'm, I'm talking they about were, anything they got, and anything. Yeah. They got to a point where it was like Nickelback doesn't ride for free anymore. Hmm. So if you wanted Nickelback to go to, you know, St. Louis, the, Budweiser would pay Nickelback to play a private show in St. Louis, and that would cover the expense that they would be losing by playing the radio show there. So right. those, they had a very, very smart management team, which Dave Lanco, a radio guy, ended up going to work for. That's where he went off to, to go yeah. because it was a smart concept. It was the, we can find those corporate sponsors that are willing to pay you to do your job and pay you so well that going to these radio stations and playing for free isn't really going to cost you anything. Wow. And so those kind of private shows and those kind of deals, which I had no idea at the time even existed. Hmm. But like now you go, because of social media, you go online and it's like, oh yeah, the guy that owns Petco just had Stevie Nicks play his backyard 50th anniversary party or whatever. You know, it's just like, hmm. oh my God, like people are just like, rock stars are for sale. It's crazy, but I guess. Yeah. yeah you're going to be my... a product. Why not get good money for it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to... I'm sorry for meditating on your on no, what has no, been your no. job for the last. <laughs> I'm still I'm still fascinated by the fact that a somebody has such a great interest in like I was always a huge huge Roadrunner fan obviously because I have history mm. and it's grown for me it's grown with an obsession about record labels and how record labels exist because there is a there's an entity of artists that are like labels suck we could do it on our own yep. and then there's an entity of artists that are just like thank god my label did for me and obviously being a priority on a label is a different relationship from being a non-priority on a label yep. and that's always going to be the case but um but i'm just fascinated with the fact that you're fascinated with this because this is just you know it's a job to do mate because i need metal to be good for my <laughs> for the rain of my years if it's not good i'm not it's no good for fucking me is it um so let's let's close this out with um how your relationship with Roadrunner ended, which is presumably 
the Warner stuff? Yeah. So I was like, I had been there. I had done 88 to 90. Yeah. I left. I had Metal Blade. I had Restless. I had Relativity. I did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, came back in 93 mm-hmm. and was there from on the West Coast office, 93 until 2011. So right. 2011, towards the end, we were, we were bringing out like um, uh, Times of Grace was, yep. was probably one of the projects, the last projects I worked. And um, just having the opportunity to take those guys around to iTunes and all that kind of thing was really a great, memorable moment. Adam and Jesse are great, great, great people. Still, um, still see them to this day. Wonderful, wonderful guys. Happy that they're with Metal Blade because Metal Blade really, truly appreciates what they do. Yeah. And staying independent, I think, is great for them. Um, but yeah, then all of a sudden, it was very strange because all of a sudden uh, you get about a year in. And all of these deals, and you probably have seen this with the history of the Roadrunner deals, where they would you'd sign a three-year deal with an entity. Um, sometimes they would take ownership of 20%, 30%, 40%, whatever, of your company at the time. Mm-hmm. And then after the three-year deal was about to end, Case would have to make that decision either to pay back the money that he was in the red or sell the rest of the company. And so almost every time he was like, he would buy it back. He bought it back from, from Universal. He brought it back from um, Edel. Edel, yeah. Edel. Edel. Um, and, and then when he got into that situation, like Edel was a very, very strange deal because they tried to sell their percentage of Roadrunner without Case's permission. That was all craziness. Yeah. So that was like, I mean, that was to, odd. I mean, right. I mean, trying to, let's, let's, let's do the Edel bit. So Case Mike and Michael Fonches from mm-hmm. Edel, they want to create a super, a super label which is, I think, modeled after what Warner were doing at the time. There's like a premier brand, there's an indie brand, and there's distribution tacked in, so everything is brought in-house. Mm-hmm. To accommodate this case buys Arcade. Arcade is a compilations company uh, based out of the Netherlands. And the real value of that is, one, pop compilations that do okay, but also they have offices everywhere. So there's now Roadrunner territories that are tacked onto this. Mm-hmm. Um, Edel go and with an initial public offering. This doesn't go too well, and all of a sudden, the value of the company is 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 reduced. But Edel is what lent Case the money to buy Arcade, which Michael right. Fonches now needs back pronto. And this was del- ah, how the Universal bit comes in. I think is because there's a number. Well, there's a- Le- Leor had a relationship with Case for many years. Yes, and Leor had been the person who brought us to Warner. At the at, at the end, but Leo had been at he was at Universal yes. earlier, and he and it was it was Crush Management with Biohazard that was where we first started because Leo had it was um, Russell Simmons and Leo had Biohazard signed to a deal with Warner, but That's felt it. that putting them out as a Warner artist wasn't going to give them the cred that they wanted. So let's put out one record through Roadrunner and then it'll be like, look at this indie thing that just exploded and how smart was Warner to pick that up. Yes. And then that worked so well for them um, that he went to Warner and he started. And that's, I believe that's how the relationship went because Lior was willing to help case out financially and it was just, I think, I think it was a, a falling of dominoes, but it comes a point in every person's time when it's like, how many more times am I going to do this? 
you know, especially if you're in your 60s, especially if you have a family and they're out of the house and you're, you know, getting on in years, at some point you just want to do something different. Do you so, know how that, the biohazard arrangement came to Rodner's door? Because I know that Case, he was gutted that there was so much resourcing spent on a, a band that was not their band, strictly speaking. Mm-hmm. So how I did, mean, I, I probably, obviously know. Monty and Mark Abramson might have a better understanding because Mark right. was like really deep in it. I actually was, that was part of the time that I wasn't at Roadrunner when that deal right. came in. I came back in 93 at the end of Biohazard, just as they were like six months later, they were putting out that Warner record. Got it. Um, so, so at that point, I don't know where all the money, I would assume some of that money came from Warner though. I would not, I would it's not just, think that Rotor spent that's all of where, the money. That moment when that, someone's knocking on the door saying we've got an idea, that's where it, the, the, that's the first domino, isn't it? Really? Mm-hmm. It is. Definitely it the is. first domino. Right. Um, so, so having that relationship with Lior and then Lior goes over and is, and is a, you know, he is the man at Warner yeah. and Warner's got the money and we've already got a little bit invested with Warner. So then they start doing our back office stuff. They start, our paychecks start coming from Warner and okay. our medical benefits start coming from Warner. And that's what the year, first what year. What year is this? What year? Because I know, I think it was <sighs> I'm gonna Universal say 2000, to... 2009, 2010, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it is, I need to get my chronology right on this because I mean, focusing on the early years so much, I've now forgotten this. So it's 2001 is Universal. That's what gets Roadrunner out of the, the red with Edel. Mm-hmm. Bang, paid off, 50% Universal, great stuff. Universal does right by just going, we just want Nickelback and Slipknot, you deal with all your other stuff. Mm-hmm. Roadrunner continues to be prosperous, pushing bands like Trivium and you know all the Metalcore stuff, Chimera, yeah. El Nino, everything's mm-hmm. great. Then we land in 2006, and Leo Cohen has gone from Universal over to Warner. Mm-hmm. And but the, the affair with this brand is still quite fiery and lustful and i guess that's when he wants to go right we want to tip this over over 50 percent. i think it's in 2006 where that initial deal was made Mm -hmm. i think but they don't start the wolves are out of the door until as you say there about 2009 yeah i mean they just they just started i think they just started like i know there was a point to which blue grape got meld into bravado and that was right okay owned you know what i mean so uh, some of the back other companies started to kind of go with it Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, Felix actually lives out here now, but he's um, he's at Live Nation, I think. But yeah, okay. so he he went over with that. Jim Salaby eventually went to Bravado as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the Blue Grape guys ended up over there. So um, when you when the original deal happened, I'll ask the same question. Same with the, the Island Def Jams thing. Mm-hmm. Did you think this is a different this is a different beast walking into the office and going, ah, now it's not universal over here, it's Warner over here? Oh. Well, they kept saying, You are a fully standalone label. You are fully we're not gonna delve in. We're not but then all of a sudden they would start to delve in a little bit. Yeah. You know, and especially like you said, on the bigger things. So all of a sudden you're like at a dinner, like Nickelback was on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and they would go to a dinner afterwards, and there's a whole bunch of people from Warner here. I'm like, oh. Right. Those guys are doing here. So that kind of stuff, it started to kind of infiltrate a little bit. 
And, um, and then we started to be like, oh, maybe you want to copy this guy when you're doing this, you know? And so then it was like, oh my God, we're training people for our jobs. (laughs) And that's what it starts to become. It's like, so you're taking these guys and you're starting to show them what the value proposition for retail or digital or whatever is for these particular artists. They're coming with like, because of distribution, because we're with the same distribution, you're doing your presentations together. So it would be like the IDJ guy and myself, whatever we'd be at these different things. (laughs) And then all of a sudden the same things would happen with Warner and you start to go through these, uh, these processes. And then mentioning that we use words, words like infiltrate and things like that. If this is the natural order of things when, when, Companies by companies. Exactly. This is this is, this is how business works. Because easy to inject emotion into it. So I'm I'm just gonna say now this is just how I, how it fucking goes. Oh yeah, no, I understand it. I I, yeah. I but the thing is, I had been through it twice before, mm. and so but this one felt different. This uh-huh. felt like their things were like I said. When you start to get a paycheck that had a Warner logo on it or or W two or whatever, it's like okay, this is this is different. This is ju- that's just like a disclaimer for the people watching this who go those bastards. And it's like no, no, this is just no, 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 no. It's it's why they do it. This, when you move to a new we, house, you buy a new toaster. You know, you just do. We things like- made a product that was so valuable that these giant monolith of of industry wanted a, a piece of it. It was yeah. like, we don't know how it is you did what you did, but we want to know. Yeah. And so, but it wasn't offensive in any way. It was just, it was just what time does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so how do we, yeah. So, so by the time we got to December of 2010, it was just like, yeah, so we're going to pull certain operations are going to be pulled into Atlantic proper. Mm-hmm. And certain teams are going to go with the radio team stayed pretty much intact and just started working both products from like fueled by ramen and Atlantic yep. and that kind of stuff, which is now like mold into Electra yep. marketing stayed pretty solid, but anything that was duplicate, any, what they called, we were redundancies. <laughs> that was the lovely term they used. It was like, we already have people that do that. So we already had finance people. We already have publishing people. We already have this, that, the other thing. And so we're going to have you tell this guy what it is that needs to be done. And then you're going to go. But Warner was just like, they they paid me for two years later. Like I, you know, I was 20 years and then two years off. It, I I can't complain. Yeah. I can't complain at all. Fair enough. And my, I, I, what Roadrunner is now, there is still a core of people that are at within the Electra family that, that are the Roadrunner people. Yeah. Um, Chris Brown for sure is a, is a big one that he is, he, he bleeds Roadrunner red and he will till he dies. He's great. Um, he's one of those people I run into at punk rock bowling. He comes out and he's got a bowling team <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, but they're solid, you know, the Dave Ratz of the world yeah. and the Rich Perkins of the world. Like these are super solid people. Um, Dan Goldberg, like they're all like really, really great people. And so um, Matt Young, it's, it's, yeah, it's they, sh- I mean, I still, I still connect. And like I said, Austin Stevens has, he was like my main go-to there and he still, and when I started working at Epitaph and Epitaph mm. had been through ADA, I started to go back to relationships with all these guys that I had known from Roadrunner for years and interact with them. It's really cool. It's cool because like the story always ends with um, 
Oh, Roadrunner's still putting out great stuff, but it's not the same as it was. And I'd like to try and well, like, they're no make longer a bit of an indie. That's that's this, the big, this, that's yeah. the biggest issue. Yeah, the biggest difference. I, I like to just sort of sprinkle a little bit of positivity on it because it sounds more cynical than it is. Um, in a hundred years, we'll look back and go, "Oh yeah, of course." You know, it, this is just how this is the way of the world. Um, but because everything's in living memory and because it was such a special place and the word family is brought up a lot when you talk about Roadrunner and that yeah. comes to an end, it sometimes it's dealt with not salt in a salty way, not in a, you know, I'm legally obliged to not be defamatory to Warner. No, <laughs> and there's no reason why you should be. You know, yeah, they, exactly. they, they had enough money to go into a garden and picked the most beautiful flower and they did. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's, still thrives you know i am always excited when i see things from trivium and i see things from um from slipknot or, or any of the bands that are on the, even theory yep. of a dead man i mean theory of a dead man are this huge entity in the streaming mm. space so and they finally get what they deserve they're a great band yeah absolutely yeah i'm I've happy got, for all of them i have no more questions for you but apart <laughs> from the last one which is um what have i missed I, I appreciate that you've done prep for this. I very much appreciate it. Like a lot of times the questions either aren't read or it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, Jim's no, no problem. Like, like I have, I have, like people always ask, um, like what was your work best day ever? I'm sure anybody could answer sure. that question. And I have like th three really strange moments that best, worst, whatever you want to call it, um, where you have like, and it was because we were looking at photos and we were going through this moments in time. And it was like, I could, I could reimagine in my mind, like these moments that were just crazy. Um, one was in 2008 when Sammy Hagar, I was a huge Sammy Hagar fan. And he did one record, um, cosmic universal fashion, not his best record <laughs> by far, but it was an amalgam of crap that he had had like saved up in the studio from working on online with different artists from different countries. It was a much more world music based than something he had ever done before. It was really a step out for him and which is why he didn't want to put it on a major. Mm -hmm. And he came in 2008 and did an iTunes presentation. And it was the best, the single most fun day of work I had that entire year. Austin <laughs> Stevens, when you talk to him, he can vouch for that. It was like, best day ever it was just hanging out with sammy hagar i can't if you have an opportunity by all means do it he is the most fun laid-back bizarre classic human being ever um 1994 mark abramson and i were at we're on tour with typo negative opening for danzig and we were having a meet and greet after typo negative played as danzig came on stage uh, a man assaulted one of the security guards and stabbed him to death. And the security guard died. It was a, a love triangle situation. But Mark and I and the band and all of the people we had brought to meet and greet the band were stuck backstage for 12 hours. We were not allowed to leave the venue because it was a crime scene. And I have photos from that that I could share of just like, what are you going to do? Like we are basically backstage having this meet and greet mm -hmm. wanting to go out and see danzig and a two a song and a half into danzig somebody gets killed and everything stops and it's a oh, complete okay. lockdown that's crazy yes um and then one time on tour with typo when they were opening for ozzy years later we were in i think it was sacramento california the lines of people outside for this big ozzy show ozzy had flown to las vegas to do a radio interview and was to fly back 
And in the station, there was a, I guess the, the station had a flight of stairs and Sharon Osbourne fell down the stairs and broke her wrist. And so Ozzy didn't show up. <laughs> and the gates had been opened. The people were tailgating. The people were waiting to be let in. Yeah. The bands were in, the bands and the crews and the label people, whatever, that were doing interviews and stuff. We were all inside the venue mm. and... They couldn't open the doors because Ozzy wasn't playing. They had to cancel, but they had to call the police and like the local enforcement to get people away from the venue. So mm -hmm. we, again, I talk typo negative myself and like three other people, plus all of the people for the other bands. So the bands did their sound checks for the crew. Yeah. And it was the most amazing thing. And then um, I want to say, what, what year was that? Say it was two. 2000, ooh, no, 90, 96 maybe? Mm. But it, it was really, I, I have to go back and get the exact date, yeah. but it was, it was really, really bizarre to basically have a hundred people sitting there, all who work for the bands, watching each of the bands just do their soundtrack because everything was set up and ready to go. Yeah. So the bands just played and um, Robert, who was one of the, backing vocalist for Ozzy. Mm -hmm. um, he had been the singer for a band called Cry of Love and he okay. did backing vocals. He was like the guy on the side of the stage who filled in some of the vocals. He okay. got to sing headlines because nice. <laughs> Ozzy wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but it was really, it was a very strange and fun, fun event. Wow. Insanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely you should call you. I'd love that you talk to Roe. I yes. want to go back and listen to Rose. I want to go back and listen to Mark's. I do, um, I do I a, love yeah, a disclaimer on Rose where I say, if you want to get to the Roadrunner stuff, go to 45 minutes in because we just choose <laughs> shit about Star Wars. Yeah. Um, I, I love, and I love Gitter. And I want to know if you had any level problems with Gitter because Gitter is always our, our famous mumbler. You always had to pull oh, Gitter in a little bit. To you know what? It was, it, the Gitter problem wasn't that. It was... Um, I think he had like a, no a noise suppressor on his laptop, so if I spoke and then he spoke immediately after him, and then he'd come back in. So I had to oh, fix that. Oh, that's just Gitter. <laughs> just, Captain Mumbles, he was great. Yeah, well, um, this was absolutely awesome, so I, I thank you very much for, for joining me. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, to, if thank you. Think you. I, I, so, I so appreciate that there that you appreciate the history of this, because it really is, it's not something that I get an opportunity to talk about, but. Obviously, I had a lot going on. <laughs>